Mystery. Welcome to that one show with Brian Combs. And joining me today is my good friend Lance Turner. And veteran listeners of the show know that means one thing and one thing only. He and I is going to be talking about wrestling over the next couple hours. Specifically, the greatest feuds in wrestling history. If you have heard his previous episode, it's one of my favorite ones that I've ever done and one of the listeners' favorites. So I had to bring him back for a part two. Lance, how are you today, my friend? Yeah, doing really well. Uh, Very glad to be back. Uh, Like you mentioned before, I had a blast recording the uh, our top ten entrance themes and. uh, so glad to see that the listeners enjoyed it as well. And I'm glad to be back uh, for another edition talking about feuds. Uh, when you proposed this uh, topic, uh, I didn't know uh, just off the top of my head if I could think of 10 uh, that I loved. And then when I got looking into it, I had way more than 10. And, and it was another one of the difficult things to narrow down but uh, i had a great time doing it and look forward to uh, getting into today's show yeah absolutely and i'm the same way i started probably with about 15 or 16 that i could have put on here kind of just whittled it down over the last few weeks and we touched really very briefly on some feuds on our previous episode but we was mainly talking about the interest music and stuff so this uh, give us a chance to actually talk more in depth about some of those and i'm very excited about this episode and uh we might as well go ahead and kick things off. I'll let you go first with your number 10, buddy. Well, in at number 10, uh, on my top 10 feuds in, in pro wrestling, uh, I'm going to the original ECW, a, uh, a little small company there that's kind of uh, sometimes gets lost in the discussion when, when you talk about the, uh, uh, I guess, the late 90s, early 2000s of pro wrestling, especially the Monday Night Wars. But uh, uh, the little company there uh, ran by, of course, Paul Heyman. Uh, a lot may remember him as Paulie Dangerously in his earlier days. But, uh, uh, you know, they, they made some noise and uh, actually had quite a bit of talent uh, in their little promotion. As small as it was, they had some great talent. But my feud is between... Uh, Shane Douglas and Taz. Uh, Shane Douglas, uh, in my opinion, one of the most underrated uh, uh, wrestlers there is in the end of history in the business. Uh, I just think uh, when it comes to him cutting promos and a guy that really developed his character over time, uh, he did a tremendous job. He was always in the ECW championship picture and. Uh, they put a lot of prestige on the TV title, and people may have to go back to the old NWA days to remember uh, that championship, but it was a very prestigious title in ECW. Uh, he held it, and the, and he had kind of a group with him known as the Triple Threat with Chris Candido and Bam Bam Bigelow. And, you know, it, their feud kind of was one of the, uh, I guess, one of the common ones that you see they feuded, I think, on and off for about a year. You know, Taz would come so close, but, uh, you know, they wouldn't give him that title shot, which led to Taz creating his own championship, the FTW belt, and I'll let you piece together what the F stands for. The world is the end part of that, so (laughs) we'll let you go to that. But, uh, you know, it was just uh, interesting. You know, he carried that on, and then for about – 
uh, uh, more than a year they chased each other, and then finally, at the guilty as charged, he was able to uh, uh, defeat uh, Douglas for the world championship. And I think Shane had had the title for, from what I could tell and read, a little over 400 days there. So he ended a historic run there to finally get over the hump, so to speak. So, and, and you know, those two guys could really talk and, and put on a show. You know, you had Taz was kind of the uh, kind of like an UFC style guy with the suplexes and submission holds, and Shane Douglas was, uh, you know, could run his mouth with the best of them and uh, uh, just made for a very interesting and fun feud, and it was one of those that, uh, uh, you know, maybe didn't get the mainstream attention it deserved, but it, it certainly caught my attention, and uh, and I really loved that one. Yeah, I'm glad you included one from ECW. Uh, I had a couple on there that I could have uh, very much put on, but they just didn't make my list. But they deserve to be talked about, ECW does, because even though they're now defunct, their legacy as well as, you know, uh, it still lives on today. It was eventually acquired by WWF or WWE years later. But, man, people that wasn't around in the 90s, ECW was something we had never seen. Now, they had had similar stuff to that death matches and stuff over in Japan and whatnot. But, I mean, here in America to be mainstreamed and as crazy as it was, and I really feel in my heart that their success influenced the Attitude Era in the WWE. I think they borrowed a lot from it. What do you think about that? I, I do, too. I, I think a lot of people, when they think of ECW, they think of that extreme part of it. Like you said, they showed us that. They gave us something completely different, trying to carve out their niche, you know, uh, trying to get the fan following, uh, trying to take a few away, I think, from WCW and WWF at the time. But but a lot of people need to know and, and go back and watch. They had just really good wrestlers there. It wasn't all uh, blood and, and guts and mm -hmm. tables and stuff, but, you know, the, some of the – uh, your technical guys like uh, Dean Malenko, Chris Jericho, Eddie Guerrero, oh, yeah. Ray Mysterio, they all got a lot of time there in the spotlight. But, you know, they had, a, as mentioned, part of his faction there. Chris Candido was good. Uh, Rob Van Dam. Rob Van Dam, a tremendous talent. Bam Bam Bigelow, a, a very gifted big man. And, uh, uh, Lance Storm, he was kind of boring and dry talking, but he was an incredible performer. And then you had uh, Perry Saturn. Uh, I can't remember his uh, – I think John Cronus was his partner's name, but they had a, the Eliminators, I think was their name, a sensational tag team at the time. And Mick Foley went over there and helped give them a boost. Steve and, Austin, too. And Steve Austin really, I think, uh, laid the foundation for the Stone Cold character there, cutting them promos on mm -hmm. WCW and things. So I completely agree. They they helped, I think, lay the, the seed, planted the seeds uh, for the uh, Attitude Era. Yeah, and you mentioned that, Steve Austin. I'd highly recommend that people look up the promo he cut on Hulk Hogan where he impersonated Hogan. <laughs> yes, yes. It's so funny. <laughs> it's really a side of Steve Austin you don't see a lot, though. I mean, you can see hints of the Stone Cold character in there, but it it's really, really funny. All right, Lance, I'm going to move on to my number 10. And, and, and looking at your list, you've got it at number nine, so it's going to work out good that we talk about this now. 
it's Ric Flair versus Sting. And I'll be honest, both of us could have ranked this higher. <laughs> we may get a little blowback from having it so low, but so be it. Because right. it is an all-timer. And I'm looking at your notes, and you've got some of the same stuff. Now, we didn't consult at all, really. No. But no. we've got some of the same stuff written down here about this. And it really kicked off. WCW ever so often would have a premier event called Clash of the Champions. But luckily for like me and you growing up, not necessarily with a lot of money in the 80s and early 90s, we didn't order them pay-per-views at 50 bucks a pop. But this one was free on TBS every, right. every, about yeah. three or four times a year. And I always look forward to those Clash of the Champions. It was like getting a free pay-per-view. And they had an Iron Man match for 45 minutes. <laughs> yes. And I remember it was – thinking back on it, it's kind of silly, but – J.J. Dillon was Flair's uh, manager at the time, and Flair was the champion and had held the belt for a long time. And they put him in, uh, in basically a giant birdcage and strung him from the rafters above the ring. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and it was whoever got the most pinfall submissions over the 45 minutes. And, and the caveat was if it was tied, they was going to go to some judges to decide it. And, and the best of my memory, the judges consisted of a – the fellow that played Wayne on the Wonder Years, uh, Jason Harvey or yeah, Harvey or something like that. He was. And then a woman whose claim to fame was that she'd been the center folk penthouse a few times. <laughs> and I think the other one was an actor that, from Leave it to Beaver or something, right? I think so. And they fought, to, for, to me, this was the first big match between Flair and Sting, and they had many other great matches after this, but this, to me, was their best match they ever did. And you can, it's on the WWE Network if you want to go watch it. Uh, I highly recommend it. It is, to me, one of the 10 best matches I've ever watched. It kicked off a rivalry that lasted, you know, a couple of decades after this, well into the 2000s until WCW ended. As a matter of fact, it was the last match in WCW history on the last Nitro. Yeah. And, and it was a perfect fit into that end. But they fought to a draw, so it went to the judges, and – one judge picked Flair, the other one picked Sting, and for whatever reason, the third judge picked a draw. So Flair, even though he didn't win, got to keep the belt. <laughs> well, I'll let you add your thoughts on that specific match in this feud, and we'll talk a little bit about it in depth, Lance. Yeah, well, you probably touched on the the, the biggest thing for me, too, was that 45-minute uh, Ironman match. That was kind of, uh, uh, like you said, that's one of my all-time favorites as well. Uh would probably make my top ten list too. Uh, it, this feud, like you said, probably could have been a lot higher on the list. I, it, it was definitely the first feud that I actually watched while it happened. That that really drew me into wrestling. Uh, that really introduced me to you know the feuds, the long term stuff. Like you said, there they had a uh, both uh, Sting and Flair were blessed with long careers. And their feud, uh, to me, it never really ended. It, it, it took breaks, but somehow it always seemed like they circled back around to one another. As you mentioned, uh, they had a, they ended their, you know, they had a, a match on the final Nitro. Uh, they had a match on the very first Nitro. I believe it was a U.S. title match mm -hmm. at, at that time. And then, you know, I remember some of the other things that happened, you know, Flair, uh, in the mask, the black scorpion that ha that haunted Sting uh, for forever, and then he gets Sting to help him against the the four horsemen and, and betrays him, and you know just Sting actually joined the horsemen for a little while too, and, and even uh, well, you know believe Flair as much like you said the 
that he would join the horsemen. So it, it just made it uh, uh, tremendous for me. And, and you know, I read, uh, you know, out, this is just something uh, outside of the few, but I, I read, I think it might have been in, in a book or, or an interview Rick Flair did, that he said that uh, I think it might have been right before 1990, before Sting uh, actually was finally able to beat Flair for the world title, that Sting suffered a little bit of an injury and uh, the WCW, I guess, higher-ups came to Flair and wanted him to lose the title uh, to Lex Luger, but Flair said, no, uh, Sting has earned his title shot. I'm going to hold on to it till he gets back, and then we're going to finish what we started. And to me, that just kind of, uh, I guess, sums up the respect that these two had for each other, uh, not just inside the ring, but outside the ring as well. And I think their respect for each other carried over and made for some tremendous matches and just wonderful feuds. Uh, because in that, uh, like you said, that Iron Man match, I wanted Sting to win so bad, but Flyer would use, you know, he's the dirtiest player in the game, and he would use all the tricks. And, you know, at that time, I was just a kid, so he was doing all the right things because I absolutely hated him with a passion. And Sting, you know, was doing all the right things as the baby face because that's who I really wanted uh, to give Flair. If Flair has come up, that's when he got his hands on him. Yeah, and it's true in not just wrestling but movies or anything. Yeah, you have to have a, a great hero, but you, a movie or a wrestling storyline or whatever, any kind of literature, is only as good as what the villain is. And to me, mm -hmm. Flair's probably the greatest hero of all time. I mean – and poor old Sting, he he kept over the years trusting Flair, and it would bite him in the in the rear end yeah. every single time. You have to wonder why he would always would think things is going to be different. It's like a fella gets cheated on by the same woman seven or eight times and keeps taking her back, thinking it ain't going to happen again. <laughs> exactly. You have to wonder what is going through their mind. Why is it this time going to be any different? Every time he would help Flair out and be like Sting, you're just falling into it. He's gonna he's gonna double cross you, and sure enough. He'd give him a low blow and let Arn Anderson give him that DDT, and here we go all over again. Yeah, and, and we'd be remiss before we move on from this feud to the next one if we didn't mention that, you know, the four horsemen was beating Sting down real bad one night, and I do believe RoboCop come to Sting's aid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, they, they had some good ones, and I think we were saying off there we might uh, venture into a show once before off. On some stuff that happened in gimmicks, but yeah, RoboCop and uh, I, I remember once. I don't know if it was during the Sting match or not, but the the Yeti came out and he just had all kind of stuff at the time. So uh, yeah, that's uh, uh, something else. Sometimes they they went when they say think outside the box. I know sometimes that's a good thing, but I think uh, uh, some of them WCW days they went way way outside the box. Yeah. And one thing that I kind of wish that they would have done different, Sting and Flair had such great chemistry, not just with their promos, but in the ring and stuff. I wish that they'd got a run, a legit run as a tag team one time to see what they could have done, man. I know that they they paired here and there and one-off matches, but a legit run for, you know, several months as a tag team. Yeah, that, that would have been a really, really interesting, I think, and you know, as they say, hindsight's twenty twenty. But you know, I can't help but to think, and I'm sure 
Sting had a had a lot of say so in his character and what have you. At that point, uh, he he had earned it or whatever. But you know, I think about how Hook Hogan totally revived uh, a career that had gone pretty much stale, as hard as that is to believe, by turning heel and becoming Hollywood Hogan. And I don't know how true it is, but I've heard that you know they did consider Sting at one point to maybe do that. But I wonder if maybe it would have added a little bit to his career. Like you said, if they were a tag team and they could have been a babyface tag team, that would have been just fine with me. But I wonder what if Sting would have ventured just a little bit uh, and became maybe the second dirtiest player in the game for a little while well, would, with the nature I'd boy. i take that a step further. I would have loved to seen one time and you could have had the storyline basically is that they'd be a babyface tag team and maybe win the tag titles and do a run for six months or maybe even a year, and then have Sting turn on Flair for yeah. a change and, and, and reverse <laughs> the roles. Let Flair be the babyface and Sting be the heel. I wonder how that would have been. Yeah, I, that's exactly right. That would have been really interesting. I, I think it would have definitely uh, during that time period because after the NWO run, Nitro really struggled in my opinion to put out a good show week in and week out. And I think that would have been something entirely fresh and new. I'm not saying it would have saved WCW, but I think some of that kind of booking at the time, who knows, maybe they could have held on and survived, but uh, we'll never know. But that would have been a great angle, I think, between those two. Absolutely. We'll take a very brief pause, and then we'll be right back to talk some more wrestling feuds. All right, Lance, you did your number nine, which was my uh, tenth one, which was Flair versus Sting. And I, when we was compiling our list, I wanted to include at least one tag team feud. I just didn't want to do all single matches. And so I got to thinking about some of the great tag team rivalries of overtime, and I couldn't come up with one better than the Hardy Boys versus Edge and Christian. Uh, and I, to, for me, man, they – and it was a legit feud. It was a slow uh, – both of them, they were at times in which neither one of them were heel or face. They just was both kind of faces, both both segments. And their most famous match was uh, the latter match. For, I think that they weren't even fighting over any belts. I think they just had like $100,000. And the winning team had to get up there and get that briefcase, which is kind of a precursor to money in the bank if you think about it. Yes. Uh, and and – that's one of the greatest matches in wrestling history, man. And it's unbelievable. It, like we talked about that Flair and Sting Iron Man match, this match, almost anything we're talking about today is going to be on Peacock on the WWE uh, section of that. Go and watch it if you haven't already. And if you like me, go and watch it again. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's pure poetry in motion, man. Yeah. And then later on, they even had another match in which they brought in the Dudley Boys, which, which was basically a triple threat ladder. It's a TLC match, basically, they called it. And it's unbelievable in its own right. I mean, some of the stuff they were doing, I know I, Edge done a spike off the top of a ladder, and they was really putting their, their bodies on the line for the sake of entertainment. I, let, I know you ain't got this one ranked, but I know you have some thoughts on it, and I'll let you share yours before we move on. Yeah, uh Absolutely. This was one of those feuds that I almost really did crack my uh, top ten. Uh, and I included, like you talked about the Dudley Boys there, I, I included them kind of in it uh, with the Hardys and Edge and Christian. I just thought, the, you know, 
during the 80s and things, you had tag team divisions. I think that was probably uh, 80s. Maybe you can go into the early 90s where tag teams were probably at the height of their thing. And, and then I think during the Attitude Era and, and that kind of thing, you had kind of, a, I guess, a, a, a revitalization of the tag team divisions. You had the New Age Outlaws, I can think of, and Harlem Heat over in WCW. You had some really good teams. And here you have Edge and Christian. I think Edge was starting to slowly uh, develop his character. He was starting to get better and better. And Christian, uh, for he's another one of those guys that are just uh, very underrated, under the radar, very talented guy, can talk as well, uh, has a lot of charisma. Uh, I think he even called himself Captain Charisma at one time. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, you throw in the Hardys, who were uh, just uh, unbelievably athletic, especially Jeff Hardy, uh, incredible performances. And then you bring in the Dudley Boys, who uh, I was talking about earlier, yep. ECW. You, you, knew, you go back to there, they got their start there. They were basically just about the same team in WWE. Uh, they were just now – getting the spotlight that they very well deserved. And you're absolutely right. That edge spear off the ladder. I think the other guy was kind of hanging on yes. to that thing. Uh, Holding the, on to the, the briefcase. The briefcase, trying to pull it down. And edge climbs up the ladder and gives him the spear right off the ladder. You're talking a good 20, 25 feet. Uh, absolutely. Just an incredible uh, uh, bump. Probably second behind Foley off the cage, probably. Uh, when you go back and look yeah, at it, I, it, it, it's definitely up there. So, like you said, uh, go watch that if you haven't yeah, already. I think the only difference is that neither one of them had a tooth come out the nose like Foley did. <laughs> and we'll very likely talk about that later. Yeah. I, I left that an important fourth, though. They wasn't just fighting for $100,000. <laughs> they were fighting for the services of Terry Runnels. You remember that? She said she would be the new valet oh, yeah, for the winner yeah. of this match. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know how much either would have benefited really from that, but uh, during that time, that was probably a, a good little angle to have with it anyway. But those three really put the tag team on the spot. And uh, I, I think that spear uh, spot happened at WrestleMania 17. So mm -hmm. when, when you go watch that, I think that's the same one where you had The Rock and Hogan. Yep. I mean, uh, you talk about an incredible uh, pay-per-view event. Uh, who's not to say that match wasn't the best match on the whole card? I believe it was. Uh, uh, when you get right down to it. So that just tells you how stacked and how good uh, WWE and stuff was back at that time. So like you said, I definitely recommend anybody going back and watching that because, you know, these teams would carry on feuding too. Later they would actually feud, as you would say, for the world, the tag titles. They, they each one held them, I'm sure, multiple times. And uh, the, the feud went on, and, and they had sensational matches after this. And I think they had some other TLC matches that were really good as well. Yeah. Before we move on, I'm glad you brought up the Dudley Boys because I was sitting here thinking while you were talking. The, my I don't know if it was the first time I ever watched ECW, but the first thing I ever remember about watching ECW was the Dudley Boys were big-time heels. Yes. And I and I had no idea. I mean, it's, you all have to understand, you know, today you can look up anything at the touch of a finger on your phone or whatever. Right. It wasn't like that in the 90s. No. And I was like, this, this. I had watched wrestling my whole life, but had never really seen anything like that. And I remember the crowd was chanting cuss words, 
and they referred to uh, uh, for whatever reason. Did they have three Dudleys in the ECW? Yeah, they they have. Like what was a their name? Uh, uh, I know they had one sign guy Dudley. He just held yeah. the signs, and yeah. then they had the Devon and uh, uh, Devon and and uh, Bully was it Bully Ray? Yeah. Was that what he called? And uh, 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 I know they had little Spike Dudley later on was with them, and I I know they had like a huge. Real big old guy with him, but I can't remember I, what his name. I is. remember Lance, and that's that. That's what I was going to bring up. They they refer to him as Big Dick Dudley. <laughs> well, I, I, I and I, I don't think they remember. was referring to his name. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, not knowing them, they weren't. But I, but I barely remember. And, and it seems like they had some guy come out and, and uh, introduce me. He always seems like in my mind now I could be wrong. He didn't. He never wore a shirt, but he wore like a tuxedo yeah. bow around his neck. That's all he had on, and, and would run his mouth about how good the Dudleys are. And like I said, that one, I just heard him call him sign guy because he just had signs all the time uh, that would have crazy phrases and stuff on them. But uh, yeah, you're right. I I actually I had a cousin that lived in Newport that would send me tapes of ECW. I, I'd go to Walmart and buy, at that time, the VHS tapes. They'd come about mm -hmm. six in a pack and ship them to him, and he would fill those up and send me to me, and then I'd go buy some more and send them. I, and that's how I got to watch ECW for the longest time. And then uh, I guess there about the end of the 90s, we, we got one of those little small satellite dishes and, uh, early on when you had one of those, uh, you could go to a section. They had what's called regional sports sections. It's like Rocky Mount Sports, Southwest Sports, and up around one of the Northeast ones, or it might have been the Philadelphia one, you, you could watch it. But it came on like 2 o'clock on Saturday night. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'd sit up and watch it and, and be dragging in the church on Sunday. <laughs> You probably having to pray for forgiveness on the stuff you've seen tonight before, buddy. I, I sure would with Francine and, and Don Marie and uh, Beulah McKeel Huddy, and I think that one was uh, Kamana Wanalea. Yeah, was the, 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 the Hawaiian lady or, or, uh, with them. So, I mean, they didn't shy away from the violence and, and sexual innuendos over there in ECW. So. Yeah, and that goes right back to my old point earlier that they heavily influenced the Attitude Era. They may not get enough credit as they deserve. We'll take a brief break, and then we'll come back with Lance's number eight. All right, Lance, what do you have at number eight for us, brother? Well, uh, at number eight comes uh, in uh, John Cena uh, and the Edge. And uh, this feud is one of those I, I call that uh, kind of went on during what I would call my casual days. Uh Probably about starting there around 06, uh, probably all all the way up until uh, maybe present day. <laughs> uh, I, I became kind of a casual fan, although we'll talk about later why uh, we both kind of got pulled back into it a little more here uh, the last uh, uh, couple years or so. But uh, uh, this is a time period uh, uh, a little bit after the Attitude Era, I think we were coming – towards the end of what they called the ruthless aggression. And uh, don't get me wrong, they, they were some incredible uh, wrestlers and, and stuff going on. Uh, 
but just for whatever reason, no really specific thing comes to mind. I didn't uh, no longer eat, breathe, and sleep pro wrestling. It wasn't something that I made sure I was home on Mondays to watch and, and anything like that. But this feud really, I, I guess, kept me involved in wrestling, kept me tuning in to see what happened. And, and I just thought it was a really good feud. You had two guys, uh, you know, you had Cena who was uh, had kind of transformed into the ultimate uh, baby face, uh, the really face of the company. And then you had Edge who was very uh, uh, charismatic and had kind of turned uh, into that anti-hero. He was becoming the rated R superstar. And, you know, he, he called himself, I think, maybe the ultimate opportunist. And he cashes in that first ever money in the bank. And then from there, there are a few just uh, kind of one of those long-term things. I don't think there was anything uh, that really lasted for like a year on top of years. It was just uh, a fluid thing that over the course of the next three or four years, they had they just made their way back to each other. They might run a three-month program or a six-month program. And then, you you know, you had the incredible match where Cena does the AA off the ladder since Edge through like two or three stacked tables. Mm. Uh, you need to go watch that match if you've never seen it. It's probably the better one uh, other whole feud. And then, like I said, just the back and forth. And, uh, uh, you know, it, to me, it was just a very interesting feud. Uh, they they both could cut promos. At that time, they'd really developed into fantastic performers. And, you know, this one, I guess, is on my list more uh, – sentimentally than really anything fantastic because like i said it was that that kind of kept me drawn to wrestling during the time period where uh, I, I was starting to kind of fade away and watch casually i'm right with you as far as that time frame goes i graduated college in 2003 and just because i was working full time and had to work a lot of mondays i just fell out of the habit of watching wrestling uh i will say that i this is a that i went back a couple years ago and, and caught up on a lot of stuff that I hadn't got to watch. Yeah. And this was, they had several matches that I enjoyed, particularly the one you mentioned to where Edge got put through three tables. And I have to say that one of the things I enjoyed the most out of this feud, and you know, it gets serious in a feud. If, if one of the parties goes to the other one's house, <laughs> I remember Stone Cold went to Pillman's house one time and, and beat him to death and even got him outside and whooped him up on against these kids play set, put him down in a little kiddie pool and, and watered him and tried to drown him. And I think, <laughs> Pillman ended up pulling the gun on Stone Cold before that night was over. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I might be wrong, but I think did Triple H go to Randy Orton's house once? He did, and he put him all the way through a window. <laughs> but Cena didn't go to – or uh, the Edge was the heel in this feud. Yes. And like you said, Cena was by far the biggest baby face in the company at the time. And and Edge didn't go to his house. He went to his daddy's house and beat his dad up. Poor elderly veteran. Beat him from pillar to post, slapped him, and just, just beat him to death. <laughs> and I think, and honestly, from what I understood, that was actually uh, seen as a real dad. It wasn't an actor, you know, or, or somebody. No, no, it was. His dad was kind of involved in that uh, uh, angle. And I, like I said, I can't remember all details exactly, but I think – the match that we're talking about where Cena 
does it i think that match actually happened in boston it did his hometown his hometown yep. and his dad was there in, in attendance i yep. do believe he's on the front so, row now that uh, you mentioned i remember that yeah you're so, right. uh you know so that kind of all goes back full circle <laughs> uh that getting the family members involved in. and like i said i can't remember for sure but i i i think this feud might have been uh you know this could have been in relation to this feud when uh like we said, uh, Edge, like I said, was developing that rated R uh, superstar persona, and his valet was Lita at the mm-hmm. time. And I think he had, well, after he beat Cena for the title, I want to say on that following Monday Night Raw, he had his uh, his rated R uh, sex show with Lita, <laughs> where they had a bed out in the middle of the ring. Now I have to go back and make for sure, but I think this was part of that feud. He finally beat. Uh, he beat Cena. I don't know if it was after the month he cashed in or whenever it was, but he beat Cena for the title. And then on the following Monday Night Raw, they had a bed right in the middle of the ring and everything, and him and Lita had what they were calling a live six celebration. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 that's no joking about it. That's what they called it. And if you've not seen that, you need to go back and watch it. It's it's a, it's a sight to see. And what, I believe it was tied into this feud, I do want to say. You're correct. Basically, just to elaborate a little bit, money in the bank for people that's not familiar, if you win that match, you basically have in your back pocket for the next year, and you can cash it in any time, and, and they don't, the you get a world title match with the heavyweight champion. Yes. And Edge won that first match, and he held it for a long time. He hadn't cashed it in. Right. And Cena had just fought probably a good 35, 40-minute brutal match and was basically on his back and couldn't hardly get up even though he had won. And all of a sudden, Edge runs down and catches that in and beats him in just a few seconds. Now, he'd always said, him and Lita, that if he ever won the world title, they was going to celebrate by having sex live on there. And I'll be damned <laughs> if you if you caught it. When Monday Night Raw come on that next night, there was a bed in the middle of the ring, and the, supposedly they they did the deed right there in front of the thousands and tenants and the millions watching around the world. <laughs> Absolutely. I almost forgot about that, and I don't know what made me think about it, but, but I, I was thinking that, that uh, you know, I knew that they had done, that they'd had that uh, spot or skid or whatever you want to say, and I was thinking, and the best I can remember, I, I was thinking this was during this time frame after the, the cash in, like you said, and, and like you said, the money in the bank. Uh, for those of you like, like you said weren't familiar with it, you should really, uh, whenever you're going back and watching it once they started this, really watch those cash ins. You know, uh, even though you know you you know in the back of your mind someone's waiting for, for just the right time and thing, but still yet. You know, you really never know when it's going to happen, and it adds a lot of excitement to when they uh, uh, cash them in. Yep. So I'm going to go ahead and move on to my my number eight, Lance. Now, I don't know if you've got this ranked or not, but I've got Andre Giant versus Hulk Hogan. Oh, uh, that's well good. We'll go ahead and talk about it. And they didn't have a lot of matches, and they didn't have the greatest of matches, but I think that this warrants discussed today because it's really the foundation of the modern wrestling phenomenon and its popularity. Now, Hulk Hogan was was probably the biggest babyface in history of wrestling during his run in the 80s. He'd beat the Iron Sheik for the title and had had it a long time. And supposedly, Andre the Giant had never been beat, even though Hogan had actually had some matches with him back in the day and beat him himself. But for the storyline purposes, 
Andre had never been beaten. He was a babyface too at the time. And I remember they was out on Piper's Pit, which was like a little talk show segment Piper would do, Rowdy Rowdy Piper, and uh, he would interview people sometimes by themselves or others. And all of a sudden, Andre turned on Hogan, and he turned on him by grabbing and ripping the cross off of his neck. Now, that was scripted, but what wasn't scripted was that he accidentally, his big old fingers, and I mean, Andre was literally a giant of a man, y'all. Yes. And he he scratched Hogan so bad that Hogan was a bleeding real bad there in his chest. And Piper, for his credit, recognized that and pointed it out because that made it even worse. Yeah. I mean, Hogan always say your prayers, take your vitamins. He was wearing this crucifix around his neck, and for somebody just to grab that thing and rip it off, you're like, oh, my God, what is happening? And he demanded a match with Hogan, and Hogan even started to cry. He's like, don't do this, brother. No, Andre, what are you doing, brother? And he yeah. started to cry for his credit. <laughs> and it's a great segment. It, it, it really, is. It really yeah. is. And then they obviously went on to have a match at WrestleMania three, ninety thousand people at the Pontiac Silverdome in Detroit, Michigan. Probably the most famous wrestling match still today. Yeah. It brought in so much more than just the regular viewer, but casual viewers, new viewers. Hogan ended up body slamming Andre. Uh, later on, they would fight on Saturday night's main event. And, <laughs> <laughs> and to give you how silly it got, uh, Andre got Hogan down and pinned him. And Hogan very clearly had his shoulder up, but the ref kept on accounting. Give the title to Andre the Giant. Then all of a sudden, the, another referee looked, looked just like that one coming running from the back. <laughs> and it was the referee that was actually doing the match was Earl Habner's evil twin brother. Yeah. They, the Ted DiBiase and Virgil had beat up poor Earl Habner and gagged him and locked him in the closet, the, the maintenance closet backstage, <laughs> and then paid his brother to come in and act like him and award Andre the title, all because Andre turned around and sold it to Ted DiBiase for a million dollars. And I know you got some thoughts on this feud, rivalry, matches, uh, I'm going to let you go ahead and talk for a minute, Lance, before we move on to the next one, buddy. Yeah, I, I do. Uh, but, like, I think you hit the, the greatest points of, of the whole thing. Uh, you know, and, and when I was going back uh, to try to find the – because I knew, like, Hogan is, is probably my – personally my favorite wrestler of all time, and I definitely wanted to, you know, to have him on my list – but, you know, I, I went and, and looked and looked. And, and, you know, as sad as it is, although he is on my list uh, uh, definitely once, and, and I guess you could say twice, but he's kind of intertwined uh, in a whole other way, uh, kind of, you know, it, it led to it. But it was, uh, you know, kind of intertwined with the other one. But he's definitely on my list, and this is one – uh, that I almost kicked myself for not having on the list, but I thought, well, he's already in one feud and, and kind of the main guy in another one. Two's probably enough. But but I absolutely agree. This feud, like you said, probably uh, started it all. Uh, you know, the big WrestleMania three match. Everybody knows that match. They know the body slam. Uh, uh, you know, you type in WrestleMania nine times out of ten, you're going to see two or three pictures uh, from that uh, body slam, that match. And it was, and like you said, we're trying to describe the, that Piper's Pit, uh, but for those that really haven't seen it, that's why we always say after we talk about something to go back and watch it because we, uh, you know, 
we don't really do it. I think sometimes the full justice of what happens, uh, uh, Hogan selling that, uh, uh, you know, it may come off silly, but like you said, in that moment, and when you look at the whole story, it was awesome to see him crying around and, and touching his bloody chest and looking at it like, you know, he'd been shot or something. And, uh, you know, it's just something else <laughs> at that time. And, and like you said, uh, in Piper, he's a guy you could talk about uh, do a whole show just on him uh, from his career in wrestling. But like you said, that he, he was so quick and knew how to work stuff, you know, to point that out. And, and you know, like you said, the tyrant of the crucifix was bad enough in itself, but now he's bleeding and, and, and crying around. Added so much more to it, and I, and I certainly agree. I could see why this would be on anybody's list of the top feuds as, as you said it, it laid the groundwork for so much that we later on got to enjoy in pro wrestling absolutely and before we move on i'm glad you mentioned the blood again because at the time hogan was a, literally a superhero i mean he really was and that and him accidentally getting scratched and bleeding was even though it wasn't scripted awesome because it showed you that he was actually mortal and vulnerable and maybe here was this man who allegedly had never been beaten in the ring. Is he? Can Hogan get through him? It's going to be a tall task. And we'd be remiss if have you got Piper listed at all? As if I don't want to step on your toes if you do. Oh no, no. I I, I went and looked and looked and uh, I, I'm sure that I probably might have overlooked something, but I, yeah. I did not have the I, Piper on. I almost list. picked him and Jimmy Snuka just for the fact. Yeah, the but it was just too brief. Yeah. But I mean. If you go back and watch the Piper's Pit, in which Piper is interviewing Jimmy Snooker, which was a Polynesian wrestler, and he brought out a coconut and asked him if he liked it. And then all of a sudden, and it's a real coconut, folks. We're not making this up. And he hit him over the top of the head with it. Had to give him a real-life concussion. I mean, he split that coconut over top of Jimmy Snooker's head. And then started feeding him the scraps of it and just stuffing them in his mouth. And Piper was a great heel in his own right. And I'm glad we got to mention him a little bit before we move on. Right. You got anything you want to add to this feud? If not, we'll take a quick break and come back in with our number sevens. No, just real briefly, I'll say uh, about Piper, like you said, uh, he was one of those guys uh, that we were talking uh, a little bit uh, off the air, so to speak, that uh, they were so many guys that had incredible matches and things. But when you started looking at, uh, you know, kind of the long term to put with a feud, uh, it, it just didn't add up, and, and and sadly for me, that's what happened with with Piper. You know, as incredible as he was, he just to me had so many great matches and, and short term runs. You know, I almost had him and Bret Hart as one when they feuded for the I believe it's the Intercontinental Title. There, you know, he was like, you know, I I trained with you, I, I watched you grow up, and then. You know, now, uh, you know, kind of the teacher-student battle. But it, it was kind of like him and Snooker. It was just a brief run there that ended, you know, after a little brief spell there. Yep. We'll take a quick break, and we'll come back in for lucky number seven. All right, Lance, old buddy. We've talked about this one off mic early before we even started recording. So we'll go ahead and talk about it for everybody to hear now. What's your number seven? In at number seven for me is uh, uh, the Bloodline feud, and I went ahead and tied in 
uh, Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, and Cody Rhodes as kind of, uh, uh, I guess, the main uh, antagonist to go with the bloodline, I guess. And when I say the bloodline, I'm referring to Roman Reigns, uh, the Usos, Jimmy and Jay, and then, of course, now you have uh, uh, Solo Sokoa, I think is is how you say that name. So, And then they are, of course, their mouthpiece is Paul Heyman. Oh, yeah, the, the best manager in the history of wrestling, in my opinion. Absolutely, and, and he just adds so much more to the bloodline. And then, you know, and, and I'll be honest, uh, this feud, uh, as we were saying kind of uh, – uh, off the air, it w- was finally WWE got back to the way, in my opinion, feuds need to be done. The slow build. Over time, they make you invest in these characters, make you wait for the big moments, the anticipation, and all that. And and they did this incredibly. And, uh, uh, you know, first of all, I'd like to say, you know, when Roman Reigns, he was a guy that I felt like, WWE wanted at the top, and they wanted you to want him at the top. And for that reason alone, he really struggled, I think, early on to find uh, his footing. But now he's turned heel. He's worked at it. He's worked at it, and he's become one of the uh, uh, greatest heels, I think. Uh, Probably when when you go back after his time's done, you'll, you'll go back and look at him as one of the best heels ever. He's in that legendary status already at 1,000 days, probably more than that now as, as champion. But to me, you know, you had Sami Zayn. Here's a little guy who can wrestle, uh, really was kind of floundering about in WWE, really hadn't really found his, his full spot. He wants to be an honorary Uso, a member of the bloodline so bad. He does all the dirty work for him. They finally let him in. And then he's got this good friend, Kevin Owens. Uh, you know, they have matches against him. Sammy turns on him time and time again, helps the bloodline. And then finally you see it taking a mental toll uh, on Sammy, the way Roman manipulates the Usos, runs the bloodline with Heyman. And you're just waiting and waiting for that moment uh, when Sammy turns on him. And then you add Cody Rhodes to the mix. Here's a guy that, really was in WWE for probably a decade, didn't really accomplish anything, goes to the independence of AEW, revitalizes his career, becomes his character. He comes back. You know, he's part of one of the iconic wrestling families, the Rhodes family. He wants to finish the story. He wants to win the title that his dad can't. You've got him tied into it. You got, uh, and then like I said, you bring Owens back into it. Sammy's finally had enough. He turns on the bloodline. He helps KO. Then you've got them feuding with the Usos. Now you've got Roman and Solo, uh, kind of an inter bloodline feud now with the Usos. It's just been an incredible uh, storyline with so many uh, parts and pieces to it for the last two, three years. And it's still going just as strong right now. And uh, as we both said earlier, it's the reason what got us back into wrestling right now. And there was just no way I could leave it off my top ten list. I'm glad you brought this one in. I barely nearly did. And I'll be honest with you, Lance. 
other than going back and watching old matches from my heyday when I was at my peak of wrestling fandom, I hadn't watched a lot of new wrestling over the last six or seven years. And this one's pulled me back in, brother, over the last uh, seven or eight months. And I think Roman Reigns should get most of the credit for it because you you mentioned he is easily the best heel today and to me one of the maybe five or six greatest ever. And you just want him to lose so much. And to show you just his orbit of how, what a superstar he is, Sami Zayn last year at WrestleMania fought Johnny Knoxville, if, I, if, I, if, I, if I'm correct. Right. Basically a, a joke match. Yeah. And then he started this storyline of wanting in with, you know, the bloodline. And he went from that to being a, co- a headline in night one of WrestleMania this year against the Usos for the tag titles. Right. And his match that he had at the pay-per-view leading up to Mania where he fought Roman in Montreal – is one of the best matches I had watched in decades, man. The the crowd was into it. It was it was Sammy's hometown, and you knew in the back of your mind that that Roman wasn't going to drop the title to him that night because he'd held it so long, and he was going to drop it if anywhere at WrestleMania one of these days. But you throughout the match, you started believing that maybe that Sammy Zayn was going to win, and he and he damn near won three or four times. And to me, that should be probably. I don't think there'll be a better match this year, man. I really don't. If they are, I, I can't wait to see it. But I have actually said, in the back, you know, in my opinion, I think that when Roman finally drops the belt, I don't think it's going to be to Sammy, and I don't think it's going to be to Cody. I think it's going to be to one of the two Usos. I really do. And did you watch the pay-per-view over the weekend? I did. I, 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 well, I watched their match. Yeah, you know, uh, for people that didn't, spoiler alert, Jimmy turned on Roman. They accidentally super kicked uh, Solo, and and Roman got mad and started shoving him a little bit, and he uh, Jimmy finally had enough and gave Roman a super kick, which didn't totally knock him out, but got him down to his knees, and then he just gave him another super kick for good measure. <laughs> so I, I mean, there's just so, and the thing about this feud, unlike the ones we've talked about, there's so many players. It's not a one-on-one feud. Right. You have literally people that's related to each other in real life, cousins and whatnot, and. You've got that angle, and then you've got the outsiders and of, of that's not related to him in Cody and, you know, Sammy and now Kevin Owens. There's just so much to work with there. And no doubt one of these people that we've mentioned, whether it be one of the Usos or Solo, for that matter, or Cody or Sammy, is going to be the one that dethrone Roman Reigns in all likely one of these days. I don't know when that'll be, uh, but it, it'll be a great moment. And you mentioned Paul Heyman. He puts it over the top. He comes out, every time he comes out with Roman, he goes, my name is Paul Heyman. And all the crowd says it along with him, and they start booing the crap out of him because they hate their guts. <laughs> but we established, I ain't going to lie, we established on our previous wrestling episode, I've always been a fan of the heels. I just can't help myself. Right. So Roman's far and away my favorite current wrestler. I would never have said that in his babyface run because he wasn't ready. I, and it's not his fault the WWE put him out there to be the face of the company when he still needed seasoning. Yeah. Now he has, and he's just run away with it. Uh, exactly. Yeah. You you described it exactly how I was trying to say it. Uh, he, he wasn't ready, but he, he didn't quit. He endured it, and he kept working at it. And like you said, now he is. And I'm the same way you are. Uh, you know, I'm a huge Cody Rhodes fan. So eventually down the road, uh, that's who I would like to see finally dethrone Roman when it comes. But outside of that, 
I'm a huge Roman Reigns fan now. When he says acknowledge me, I acknowledge you. Because, <laughs> I, and like you said, Paul Heyman, I, you know, he adds to it. I like Paul Heyman. I want to see, I want to see him and Roman come out because when they do, you know, something really good's going to happen that night. Roman's going to chastise some of the bloodline or he's going to lead up to, to something. And like you mentioned, he, he is now to the point where he's so seasoned and knows his character, knows how to work it. He brought Sami Zayn really out of obscurity to a main event level. Now, Kevin Owens was probably already borderline there, but now he's took him up to that, that one final step too. And as well-liked and received as Cody was, and as big of a name as he had built uh, for himself when he come back, just being able to be thrown right back into that spotlight with Roman, I think has made me, uh, you know, I think it's elevated him as well. And, and to me, that's the sign of a great wrestler, like we talked about the Ric Flairs, the Shawn Michaels. They could wrestle a broomstick, and at the end of the match, you'd say, that broomstick wasn't so bad, boy. <laughs> and that's how I look at Roman. He, he, he's, he's that good now. And, and I'm a huge fan. And, and I, I could easily see Jimmy or Jay, either one. And I'm a little surprised it was Jimmy because Jay and Sammy kind of had a, mm -hmm. a, a friendship. And I thought if either of the Usos would turn on him, it would be Jay. But in a twist, like you said, we had Jimmy that said enough of this and gives him the two super kicks. And then you've got Solo, who I think is getting a little bit tired of being in the background of Roman all the time taking the orders. And you can kind of see, uh, I don't know, the signs are just kind of simply there, not full, but they're kind of hinting at maybe Solo's going to have enough one day. And like you said, he could be the one to do it because they've got him looking like a monster, you know, uh, a guy that's going to be about unable to be beaten. And I think they're kind of doing that just in case they want to go that route. But, uh, yeah, Roman is the key to the whole thing, and he's doing it awesome. Maybe Solo will rip Roman's lay off his neck and draw blood on his chest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we'll move on. To my number seven, which is taking it back till the early 90s, is the Macho Man Randy Savage versus Jake the Snake Roberts. Is this one you've got on your list, Lance? It's not. I didn't. But this was a good one, brother. Yeah. I, at the time, Macho Man had turned heel. And Macho Man, to me, is one of the four or five best to ever do it. I mean, he had he was a total package. He would give great promos. A lot of times he'd be on drugs or whatnot in real life, and they'd be very bizarre promos, but they were still great. <laughs> Yeah. The he had, <laughs> we we mentioned the one where he was taken like a magician in our previous episode the cream of the crop uh, just go back and watch that role. again if you i mean it's to me might be the, the best promo in wrestling history i don't know what he was on at the time but whatever but he it was, was able to do. <laughs> but anyway he had turned heel and got and his real life wife and valet was miss elizabeth and Storyline purposes, they had broke up, and he was now being managed by the sensational Sherry, which was a great – we mentioned Paul Heyman. She's another one is one of the three or four best managers of all time. Great heel manager. Managed HBK, Rick Marmotel, list goes on and on. Well, she turned on the macho man. 
And I'll be damned if Elizabeth wasn't in the stands and run out and whooped her. And the macho man got up and was surprised to see her, and all of a sudden they started playing that pomp and circumstance, and they hugged, and it was an awesome moment. So they set the wedding day, even though they was married in real life at this point, they set the quote-unquote wedding date at SummerSlam later that year. And uh, out of nowhere, here come old Jack the Snake, and he gave him a, he gave him a big old King Cobra. It's <laughs> a wedding gift and spoiled the wedding, <laughs> which started a feud. Now, for storyline purposes, that match I just mentioned, the Macho Man, it was a career versus career match, so he was no longer allowed to wrestle, but he still would come out and sometimes do some announcing, especially on Monday Night Raw. Well, Jake the Snake kept antagonizing him, antagonizing him. There's nothing the macho man could do because he was barred from wrestling. Well, one night he finally got in the ring on him, and here come that King Cobra again. And Jake the Snake tied him up and sick that Cobra on him. And it, and it <laughs> now obviously it didn't have no venom in it, but it still had its fangs for real. And it bit him, and and we you talk, and he was pouring the blood. I mean, just absolutely gushing. And finally, the macho man got reinstated so he could fight Jake the Snake. And it was a brief feud, but it was crazy. I mean, there's an interview out there with Jake the Snake in which he talks about the lead-up until that moment where he took that cobra and let it bite the macho man six or seven times. The macho man, as we well established, was on some drugs. And he was real paranoid about it. And and he was worried that, that, that they actually hadn't milked the venom out of that cobra and they was going to kill him in the ring. <laughs> so he made Jake the Snake in the locker room earlier that evening let, let that cobra bite him <laughs> to prove that it wasn't actually venomous. <laughs> and that really, that's real life. I mean, that's not part of the storyline. Yeah. That really happened. Well, what you got to add about this feud, Lance? <laughs> I, I don't know if there's anything I can't. Can't add to it. I think that I about summed it up. I mean, like you say, you've got the. Uh, I, I don't know. I can't say for sure, but it's the first wedding that I remember. There's been some afterwards, but like the what I call the wrestling wedding uh, that I can remember. You know, the reuniting of uh, Miss Elizabeth and the Macho Man, and I, I can remember just like it's yesterday. The Cobra biting a. Macho man in the bicep and it pouring the blood there. And we we talk about the, the macho man as bizarre as his interviews were, they're still fantastic. Well, what people need to realize is Jake the Snake yes. could cut a promo too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and he delivered, uh, you know, I can't remember right off any specific ones. I'd have to go back and rewatch the feud. But I, I, there's no doubt in my mind what he didn't deliver uh, some great interviews because he, he could talk and he could make you hate him or love him. And uh, I, I've seen him do countless interviews uh, uh, before other matches, and I can only imagine some that he delivered for this feud. And and I can see why it's on the list as, you know, uh, you had a – uh, you know, kind of, this was one of those kind of what, you know, kind of a buildup of a violent feud, you know, the snake uh, attacking uh, uh, the macho man, uh, you know, supposedly retired outside the ring. And then, uh, you know, the buildup for him to get reinstated and to finally get the match. So it, it, it was a great storytelling as, as when you go back and watch wrestling in those days, you see a lot of that back then. The great storytelling, and this is just another fine example of that. Absolutely. 
So we'll take a real quick break and then we'll come. We're almost halfway through this list and uh, we'll come back and do our number sixes. All right, Lance, we have each one more pick till we get into our top five. What's your sixth favorite feud of all time? Uh, my in at number six for me is the Undertaker Kane feud. And this is one that I think we talked about uh, a little bit uh, when we were doing our entrance themes. Uh, you know, there's a series of things that uh, uh, that made this uh, a few great. Uh, but to me, at the time when I was watching it, and we kind of talked about how you can't really be take wrestling so serious all the time. You've got to allow for some silliness and, and some <laughs> other things. And while I don't find this exactly on the silly side, but you kind of, uh, I guess, have to suspend a little bit of belief because kind of the supernatural factor, if you will, in this feud. And, uh, you know, but really what, what got me so hooked on it was The Undertaker is refusing to fight Kane early on. The build-up to their actual match. Uh, we talked about that Kane attacked uh, The Undertaker, you know, too many times to count before he finally uh, accepted the challenge. And I think on the raw that he came back on, you had the coffin out there, the lightning strikes, mm -hmm. you, you hear the bells ring, and then you know the Undertaker's come back to life, and he's, and he's ready to go. <laughs> and he's going to teach his baby brother a lesson. Now, as silly as that may sound, for us wrestling fans, that was something to see. And we were on the edge of our seats waiting for that moment when the Undertaker says, enough of this. Here I come. I'm going to give you what you deserve, Kane. And sure enough, they uh, had a great match at WrestleMania. I think it took three or four tombstones to finally put Kane down. But for me, it was just, uh, you know, uh, my brothers and I never had no feuds, but I had two brothers growing up. I know how brothers can be. So, you know, two brothers arguing and fighting around and, and Kane being the older brother like I am. You know, you put up with uh, your younger brother's crowd for so long, and then you just got to, you take too much of it, and then you got to <laughs> smack them around a little bit, and that's something I could relate to a little bit. And uh, you know, like I said, just to build up, this is one of those feuds that really is high on my list, just flat, simply for the build up, and the moment I thought paid off perfectly. You didn't get no letdown. And uh, and that's what made it on it, and you know, and the Undertaker is just one of the best ever, anyway. And Kane should probably be on a top twenty-five list, if not higher, anyway. Uh, he's a guy that really, really was good. Uh, he was just during a time frame where there were so many other good ones that sometimes he's kind of overlooked a little bit. And then later on, they team up and make a run as the Brothers of Destruction. Uh, just you know, these guys' careers intertwined uh, so much. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and if anybody went to the early days, uh, I remember on the interest theme show, you mentioned Isaac Yankum. You know, <laughs> that that's who Kane started out as. And you see him get this character and get to be and develop and, and really save his career. Uh, so be it. I, I watched a, a biography on Kane, and I think they – you know, this was, he considers this his last shot to make it. 
and he really, uh, uh, you know, uh, embodied the character. And their feud was just fantastic. And you had Paul Bear and the mix who's turned on the Undertaker to bring his brother Kane, who he's brainwashed into believing that Kane let him burn his parents burn up and let him get burned. And it was just fantastic story and build up. And uh, and this is why it's as high as it is on my list. I'm glad you mentioned this one. Lance, I actually just had it one spot higher at my number five. I'll go ahead and give my thoughts on it so we don't have to do that here a little later. And you mentioned Paul Bear. I remember when he come out and done that promo on Undertaker. He turned me, he's like, he's alive. Oh, yes. Kane's alive. And he's like, what's going on here? And the story, now think about this for you all. The storyline was allegedly the Undertaker had set fire to their family home when Kane was a baby and killed all three of them his parents and his baby brother. But somehow in this feud, the Undertaker was the good guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even though he was allegedly had burnt their house down and killed their mom and dad. <laughs> and he's still the good guy. Uh, he's still the good guy in this situation. <laughs> but the, Undert <laughs> the Undertaker did refuse for, for weeks and weeks to, yes. to fight back. I mean, and they Paul Bear and, and Kane tormented him physically and mentally. And he never would fight them. When they finally matched up at Mania, Am I crazy or was it an Inferno match? I know they had an Inferno yeah, match. they did. I, I can't remember. Too. I think it was. They had a Hell in a Cell and Inferno match, but both of them are great matches. In the Inferno match, they lit the <laughs> ring on fire. Yes. <laughs> and this was a feud that, that ran hot for a good year. Uh, took a little break, but like you said, they was intertwined. They would, they would bump into each other throughout the, the years before they ended up both trying. I remember – after their main feud, they fought a triple threat match against Stone Cold and pinned him at the same time and then ended up having to fight each other for the belt the next night on Raw. Uh, they go hand in hand. Uh, Glenn Jacobs, which is portrayed Kane, like you said, his previous gimmick was an evil dentist called Isaac Yankum. Believe it or not, he's now the mayor of Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah. <laughs> Kane is the mayor in real life of Knoxville, Tennessee, folks. <laughs> Oh, and I'd say if you probably just lined up all the mayors in the in 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 real life throughout America and had them all fight in a battle royal, he'd I'd I'd probably put my money on Glenn Jacobs, aka Kane. Yes. Uh, I'm gonna move on to my number six before we take a break at the halfway point, Lance, and it's another one featuring the Undertaker. And I'm gonna have more than one featuring the Undertaker, obviously tonight, because he just did it for thirty years. He just did it so long and so good. I couldn't not talk about some of his feuds. And the one I've got at six is HPK versus Undertaker. And I may be cheating just a little bit because they didn't have a quote-unquote long-running feud, but they had, in my opinion, three of the five best matches I've ever watched. They fought the very first Hell in the Cell. Yeah. And speaking of Kane, that was the night that Kane finally debuted. Yeah. They'd been building up for him for months and months. <laughs> and I remember the Undertaker had Sean beat. And all of a sudden, the lights went out. Here come Paul Bear. Oh, and then here come Kane behind him. And he was a monster. And he was had this red and black outfit on. And whoever designed his mask knocked it out of the park. He looked pure evil. He literally looked like he come out of the bowels of hell. Yes. And he come in and just laid a tombstone on her taker and walked off without saying a word. And Shawn Michaels won the match. But that was, you know, the nobody was talking about who won that match coming out of that because of Kane. But it was a fantastic match in its own right. And then Sean had a uh, run as champion a little while after that, and they was building towards a Stone Cold Shawn Michaels match at Mania that year. 
But a month or so prior to that, they fought in a, a casket match, which is an awesome match. And Sean ended up breaking three or four of his vertebrae in that, and at the time it ended his career. And it'd be a decade before the two would fight again. Now, they've got two back-to-back -back mania matches in the twilights of their careers. But leading up to that, the year before that, they was the last two men in the Royal Rumble. And for my money, that's the last two, last two men standing segment in Royal Rumble history. Because normally when these two men left, they might fight for a minute or two. Now, Sean had been in for over an hour, and Taker had been in for about 40 minutes at this point. And they went at it as hard. They basically put on a one-on-one -on -one wrestling match for a good 20 minutes after already fighting for an hour. And that just sold the seeds as we got to see these guys actually match up in a match at least one more time. And the following year at Mania is my favorite match in the history of wrestling. Undertaker ended up winning that match, but they literally put finishing hold after finishing hold on each other and kept kicking out. Sean super kicked Taker three or four times. He kicked out Taker, did the last ride and two tombstones on Sean. He kicked out all three times. And I remember the look on Taker's face was like he couldn't believe this was happening. Because people just didn't get up from those moves, little long three of them within five minutes span, and finally Sean done a, attempted a uh, a moonsault off the top rope, and Taker caught him and gave him a pow, uh, the tombstone for the third time, and that was the charm. And then the next year at Mania, they had a matchup that wasn't quite as good as that one, but an all-time classic in his own right, and that was the last time Shawn Michaels really ever wrestled. Taker, in his biography, that's on the Peacock stated that he was by far sean was his favorite person to work with in the ring he said outside of the ring for the long time especially in the 90s he was not the best person to be around that changed after he was retired for eight or nine years and gotten sober and clean and started a family and whatnot but the chemistry these two had in the ring is is probably unmatched in, in wrestling history in my opinion i'll let you talk a little bit about that before we take a break lance yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more with the chemistry factor that they had. And uh, once again, uh, just adds to the fact of, of how good Shawn Michaels was. Not that The Undertaker needed packing, but when you've got a matchup with someone the size of The Undertaker against Shawn Michaels, the other guy has to make you believe in some way that he has a chance against somebody like The Undertaker. And Shawn Michaels was able to do that. And like you said, sadly, in that coffin match, Shawn gets injured and has to go away. But, I, you know, I kind of alluded to this in, in our previous show that uh, one could argue that Shawn Michaels, once he returned from injury, had just as great a career as he did before he was ever injured. That's just how talented he was. And uh, I agree, though, those are three fantastic matches, especially that WrestleMania match. It, it's one of my favorites too, uh, of all time. And and you know, I I, want, I, I consider this one, but like you kind of mentioned, it was one of those that I went back and forth on. Is it do I love this so much because of the the matches, or or was it really a great feud? And and you know, you've got you got to blur the line sometimes. And and, and this one definitely warrants uh, to be on the list because it was fantastic. Uh, uh, matchups with these two and and as you said the undertaker just had such a long career that he had so he had memorable matches and feuds with so many guys but Shawn michaels and his matchups and feud was, was incredible and i definitely agree with it and and people need to go watch that wrestlemania match it, it's 
it's it's worth the, just to watch the whole event just to see that match. Uh, just fantastic from start to finish, and uh, I, and that's why we say go back and watch these stuff because uh, sometimes we may not do it justice just how good it is. So, uh, but uh, yeah, th- this feud definitely belongs on the list. Uh, Taker and Shawn Michaels, uh, fantastic matchups. All right, Lance. It's, we've been having some a great time so far, and we're only halfway home. We're going to play a commercial, and then as the Macho Man so famously said, we're going to come back with the cream of the crop, which is the top five wrestling feuds of all time. Hey, Brian, once again here to tell you about my good friends at The Goblin Trading Company. That's right. They are putting out new stuff almost daily. Shirts, hoodies, mugs. Not just exclusive that one show merchandise, but all kinds of cool stuff. They have a really new cool shirt for my D&D friends of a lich. And if you'll just go to Etsy, type in the Goblin Train Company, you can see that shirt and all the other stuff they have. A lot of you have already bought some hoodies and t-shirts of that one show, and I appreciate that. Keep on buying that stuff, wearing it out, tagging myself or the Goblin Train Company on social media and letting us see that cool shit that they are making because it is cool. And if you want to be cool, you will go ahead and get you a hoodie or t-shirt from the one and only Goblin Trading Company. If you don't know how to get there, in the show notes, I'll have a little link. And all you got to do is click on that sucker and it'll take you right there to where you'll see all that awesome stuff I just talked about from the Goblin Trading Company. All right, Lance, what do you have in at number five, brother? Well, fittingly so, the, the kick off the cream of the crop, the macho man Randy <laughs> Savage and, and Huck Hogan come in at my number five. And uh, I don't want I don't want to sit here and say this was probably truthfully the fifth greatest feud <laughs> ever. But but for me as a kid, when I watched it, uh, it, it is the fifth best. Uh but no, to, to me, this whole feud is, is the mega powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you had these two great uh, wrestlers. You had the Hogan, who, like we said, is pr- probably the greatest babyface in the history of wrestling. And at this point, his career was still red hot. He was probably the most beloved wrestler going. And then uh, you have the Macho Man, who actually, uh, I, I would feature to say at this stage we might have been number two right behind him and uh, uh you know they were uh having run-ins and and things and finally they decided hey we need to team up uh, <clears throat> you know we've got the andre and the million dollar man being thorns in their sides and we need to team up and and lo and behold they do and the mega powers was formed with one of the greatest handshakes in the history of handshakes. And if you've never seen it, you need to go watch the clip on YouTube or as we say, Peacock has all this stuff. 
And then from that point on, uh, you know, they team up, and then you have the jealousy factor kicks in when Miss Elizabeth, I think they had a match where she took a bump, and I think both men ended up leaving each other. Hogan Goat takes her to the back and comes back, and then something happens, and Macho Man leaves Hogan, who ends up winning the match by himself. And then they go back to the back, and Elizabeth's laying on a stretcher or what have you, and that's when it blows up. Savage has had enough. Hogan's trying to take his woman, and they blow up, and from there they have a fantastic feud. But uh, this is another one of those that really is on my list because it involves two of my favorite all-time wrestlers. And the slow buildup, the anticipation, the, you know, uh, you know, the macho man, uh, you know, we talk about the bizarre, the crazy. That's how his character was. It was bizarre. He was volatile. Uh, you know, he was uh, one of those guys you think could explode at any moment. You know, if he's good, bad, what have you. And you just knew that this couldn't last. Savage <laughs> wasn't going to be a, a good guy forever. And, and you just wait, wait, wait to, for when it happens. And then, of course, they have. Uh, their match and everything and it was just incredible build up to it and for a kid you know like i was probably uh when was this uh, uh probably eight or nine years old at the time when it started is you know you loved it when the mega powers formed and you were cheered for them but then you started seeing that this is going to come to an end and, and i just love the build up to it and, and that's really why uh, like I say, two of my favorite wrestlers and the build-up uh, led this to be number five. Yeah, I don't have you, – you talk beautifully about this feud. I don't have a whole lot to add to it. I will say that we mentioned earlier how in real life the macho man was paranoid likely due to the drugs he was using at the time. So, obviously, a storyline of him being paranoid was just pretty much our imitating life. Hogan had, you know, when you had packed Miss Elizabeth back to, to get medical attention, and the macho man supposedly said out of the corner of his eyes he's seen Hogan touching her butt <laughs> as he was packing her back there to get her to, to, the, to the EMTs. And, and that pretty much started the whole feud. <laughs> yeah. The mega powers exploded because Hogan touched Miss Elizabeth's butt. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I already mentioned my number five right before the break, which was Kane versus Taker. So I'll go straight on into my number four before we take a break, if that's all right by you, Lance. And it goes way back to the 80s, and it's Dusty Rhodes versus Ric Flair. Have you got this one? I don't, but I come close. This uh, both of these guys – now, Dusty was a little older at the time. He was, for lack of a better word, he was really overweight, not in the best physical shape, but – what to me made this feud so great was not necessarily what they did in the ring, which was which was awesome in its own right, but it was the, the promos they would cut on each other. Two of the best ever on the microphone that's going back and forth every week on WCW on Saturdays mornings and Saturday evenings. Flair was the nature boy, styling and profiling, worth millions of dollars, spilling, spilling, spending more money on his shoes than you make in a year. And the and to contrast that, Dusty was just a working man, a son of a plumber. And I remember his hard times promo yeah, that he cut yeah. on Flair when. Greatest. I mean, it may be it's got to be in the 
a handful of the four or five best promos of all time. Just go and type in Dusty Rhodes Hard Times on YouTube and, and, and watch that. You've got a lot, y'all have got a lot of homework that me and Lance has given you over the course of this episode, but I promise y'all that it's going to be worth it. And they had uh, they had some some great great moments. Probably my favorite moment of the of the whole thing was that Dusty had a protege at the time that was another Texan that he was bringing along called Barry Wyndham. And I'll be damned if Barry didn't turn on poor old Dusty and join the Four Horsemen. <laughs> Uh, we talked about Roman Reigns being the greatest heel right now, but I don't know if Flair ever be talked. I mean, oh. <laughs> hey, and the thing about Flair is he never really changed his gimmick. And he should have been a heel the whole time, but he was so good at what he done, people cheer him. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, I mean, it's crazy. It but they, these two, to me, is probably the best feud of, of – it along with Flair Sting is the two best feuds WCW ever had. Uh, I'll let you add some thoughts on Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair before we move on, buddy. Yeah, th this is one, uh, another one that almost uh, made my list, which I know uh, I've said that a lot, but but it really was. And, and the sole reason I kept going back to it was because of that Hard Times promo. Uh, just incredible letting you know that how – you know, the son of a plumber didn't have much, but he, he was still going to stand up and take on the rich boy, the nature boy, Ric Flair. And, and Flair played his part, Dusty. He is, and it just made for magic when it came to in the ring and outside of the ring. And, uh, uh, you know, and this may have came later on or in that neighborhood the time here, but I remember that the horseman, and uh, had somehow, I don't know if they were working with the Road Warriors or what, but they took a spike to Dusty's eye, and he come out with his eye all patched up and said, you didn't kill me, you didn't kill me, and, and cut a big promo on that, that, you know, they should have finished the job, that he's going to come after them. And, you know, that's just uh, one of the early examples of how, you know, you can add different parts and, and just keep a few going and keeping it fresh, but, just going back to the original feud, it don't get uh, no better than uh, the Nature Boy and Dusty on the mic. And I completely agree that uh, I don't think there'll ever be anybody that will dethrone the Nature Boy as the greatest heel of all time. They may come some that gets close to it, but I don't think they can ever overtake him because, like you said, I just don't see anybody being able – to stay the same person, be a complete 100% heel all the time and still be as popular 40 years later as he was the day he started. You know, and I can remember how people still loved him later in his twilight of his career in WWE. I think uh, talking about Shawn Michaels, him and Shawn Michaels tagged in a match were partners against uh, Triple H and somebody. And lo and behold, the Nature Boy gives Shawn Michaels a low blow, and I think that might have led to the formation, the evolution. I know, yeah, you're right. I know Randy Orton comes out wearing a mask as he attacked Kevin Nash before that. But, I mean, you, you would think that the fans would be like, oh, there he is again, we hate you, Flair. But, no, they love the evolution. They loved Ric Flair, and for that reason alone, I don't know if anybody can ever top him. But, yeah, you're right. Uh, this feud uh, 
probably would have had more, I guess, sentimental stuff to me if I'd actually got to watch it more of it live. Uh, but I, I still, I was probably too young to remember a lot of this. And this is one of those that I've come to love by going back and watching. And, uh, you know, that goes to say for some of the other stuff, I go back and watch and see new stuff that, you know, ordinarily I didn't see or grasp as a kid. But uh, I think that's why it didn't stick with me as much as the others. But uh, like you said, people need to go watch that Hard Times promo. It just tells you basically what this feud was all about and those two guys delivered in every aspect. Absolutely. We'll take a quick break, and then I think it'll be time for us to come back for your number four. Right, Lance? Yes. All right, Lance, what you got at number four? In at number four on my list is Stone Cold and The Rock. <clears throat> and these are two guys that you could probably have uh, on the list more than once with all the, the great uh, feuds and stuff they were involved in. And I'll be honest with my top four, uh, at one time, uh, they each sat in the number one spot, had a hard time uh, separating them because I these are four that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, but Stone Cold and The Rock are two of my favorites. <clears throat> and, of course, they were probably the two top guys during the Attitude Era. Uh, just a fantastic time uh, to be a wrestling fan. They were so many uh, uh, tremendous uh, performers and matches and events and skits and storytelling angles, all the whole package. It had everything uh, in its favor. But these two guys, uh, uh, you know, uh, both of them are, are, are would be in, in probably anybody's top five list of, of guys that can cut promos that can talk and uh you know you got stone cold the the true anti-hero uh you know battling uh you know standing up for the so-called i guess kind of blue collarish uh kind of guy and then you got the rock who has totally uh transformed himself into from rocky mavia that fans hated so much they'd chant die rocky die to The Rock, who was becoming incredibly popular and over. He was one of those guys like Stone Cold. It didn't really matter if he was kind of playing more of the good guy or bad guy role. The fans loved him and ate up everything that he said. And and that just led to fan, not so much what I would call five-star matches. Uh, nothing really, uh, when I went back and looked, I, they didn't really have that one match to me that really stood out that I would call one of the, the best matches, but their storytelling and promos and what they did to lead up to it as some of the best ever. You have the incidents uh, over the intercontinental title uh, where you have Steve Austin, he throws it into the river. <laughs> and, and then I think later on in, in, in a few, they have the rock throws his smoking school world title into a, a, a lake or a river. And, you know, they would just cut promos on each other and just fantastic build up. And, and I don't know if really uh, there's a lot more that uh, uh, I can say to that. I, I will say this. I do know that Stone Cold, it seemed like always came out on top until later on 
a very late in their feud, I think the final stages of it, the rock finally got that win over stone cold. And I remember seeing the rock uh, in an interview said that after that match, he bent down and whispered into uh, Steve Austin's ear. Thank you. Because he feels like Austin really took his career to the next level. And, uh, 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 you know, and these two guys did, they kept pushing each other. I think, um, you know, I can't say for fact, but I do believe that they tried. Both of them really wanted to be the top guy, and so they worked so hard at it that it just carried over into their feud and, and made for some fantastic entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. And we've mentioned earlier about how Dusty and Flair was two of the greatest at the mics, and the same can be said for Stone Cold and The Rock, absolutely. The promos they cut on each other, and I'm glad you mentioned that match in which The Rock finally won. I do believe that was Stone Cold's retirement match at Mania. And The Rock did t- – I think he even told him he loved him too. He probably did. Uh, and uh, that was a genuine moment between two competitors that for the previous decade had been the two faces of the sport, no doubt about it. And we mentioned earlier how when The Rock – you mentioned The Rock when he was come on the scene was babyface, people hated him. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is when he turned heel and was the rock, the same thing that happened to Flair, people started cheering for him when he's supposed to be the heel because he was so good at it. He was. The people's champion. So he finally turned face again. <laughs> and uh, these two, had, like you said, never had, necessarily had the greatest matches, but the promos and this, this absolute just blistering each other on the mics, what made it. And, uh, and, so I'm glad you brought them up. I don't have a whole lot more to add to it other than I think the best run they had as far as their feud went, you touched on it, was when The Rock uh, turned and joined the corporation. Yeah, he, he became that. And become the corporate champion, basically. Yes. And he was uh, a true heel, was talking about how all of us that watch wrestling were trailer park trash and, that, and things of that nature. Yeah. And I'll touch more on that later, not to give anything away. But uh, if you don't care, Lance, we'll just move straight on into the number threes, brother. I'll okay. go because uh, I'll go first. Uh, mine is, and for the last time, I'm gonna be talking about this individual today. But I, like I mentioned earlier, I can't help myself. He's just too too good for too long. Undertaker versus just what Mick Foley. I mean, call him Mankind, Cactus Jack, whatever. Uh, and to me. The build-up with Kane was fantastic, and people really remember how great that was. But a lot of people forget about the build-up of, of Mankind coming over to WWF at the time. Uh, all of a sudden, you started seeing these crazy promos on Monday Night Raw of a fella just, just kind of sitting by himself down in a boiler room with rats. Run, live, actual rats just running all around, and him just yanking big chunkfuls of his own hair out and just talking real off-talk. And I was like, who in the heck is this? This is crazy. Yeah. And I'll be daggum if it wasn't uh, Mankind, a.k.a. Cactus Jack, Mick Foley, do love you, whatever you want to call him. And he had, we mentioned Kane's mask. He had an awesome mask, too. It was basically big old studded leather that was just in four or five different straps covering parts of his face. He generally looked insane. He did. I mean, you believe this guy had a, had a screw loose, and he probably did, given the fact of the stuff, some of the stuff he did, which I'll get to here in a minute. But I remember they fin- they finally had their first official match. It was called a Boiler Room Brawl. Yeah. And 
the the gimmick of this match is they started fighting in the boiler room, basically the basement of the arena in which this pay per view was taking place. And to win, you had to get to the ring and get the get the urn from Paul Bear, <laughs> which is just foolish if you think about it. And they beat the snot out of each other. I mean, they fought all the way through that boiler room. They fought out in the concession stand, all up and down the arena, the locker room. And the Undertaker had the best old mankind. He got to the ring and reached for that urn. And, and I'll be damned if Paul Meyer didn't turn his back on him, wouldn't let him have it. You remember that, Lance? Yeah. It, Paul Bear turned on him and started to align himself with mankind. <laughs> we, we touched on this earlier with Sting and Flair. This was the first time that Paul Bear turned on the Undertaker, but he turned on him several times after this. I don't understand why, <laughs> why he kept taking him back, Lance. I don't either. <laughs> and that wasn't our last of their feud. I'd say uh, the... I don't, you'd be hard-pressed. I'd say that the, the more casual people know of the Andre the Giant versus Hogan match at WrestleMania three, but as far as over the, the last 25, 30 years, the Hell in the Cell match with Mankind and Undertaker at King of the Ring may be the match that most people that ain't even wrestling fans are aware of. Yeah, We touched a little bit of this on the last episode, and one of the main reasons – we're coming back for this episode to talk more in-depth on some of the stuff we barely got to talk about then. But a hell in a cell, for those that don't know, is a steel cage with a roof on it. And Lance, I'd venture to say it's got to be 30 feet in the air. Yeah, yeah, and probably yeah. count that, – that's to the ring. And if you – I'd say a good 35, 30, you know, 35 and a half feet to the apron around the ring. And mankind, God help him, he comes out and he just climbs to the top of that thing and starts hollering for the Undertaker to come up and fight him right from the get-go. And – Five minutes into the match, he picks Foley up, Mankind, and throws him, slings him, not just down to the ground, but out and through a table, head first. And any normal human being, that would have been the end of that. (laughs) (laughs) He legitimately separated his shoulder on that bump, so he was dangling with one arm. And they paramedics come in and work on him, and they get him down about halfway to the locker room on a gurney, and he jumps back up and with one arm climbs right back to the top of the cage again. Yes. And if that ain't enough, the Undertaker body slams him, and or he choke slams him yes. on top of the cage, and this wasn't planned. The cage give way with him, and he hit head first into the ring and knocked the tooth all the way out through his nose. And Jim Ross's commentary on this match is the best play by play in wrestling history. <laughs> they've used it a million times on other things in which they've dubbed over scenes of movies and whatnot. Look it up. He says, good God, they've killed him. They've got us, my witnesses, they have broken him in half. And I'll be damned, he was really pretty much broken in half at this point. And that still wasn't the end of it. They fought for a few more minutes and he ended up tombstoning him on a bunch of thumbtacks and sticking about 100 or 50 of them in the back of his head and whatnot. I don't know if any single match has dealt out more actual real-life physical punishment than that one did on Mick Foley on those three bumps he took in that match. Well, go ahead and give your thoughts on that match and, and the feud overall, Lance. Yeah, the, this is the one, too, like I said. Uh, uh, re- this one here was probably my number 11 if we'd have done uh, went one more because I, I, I was researching this. Uh, the Boiler Room match. The build up to it, like you said, the the vignettes of mankind with that leather mask on sitting down there in the boiler room. A beautiful build up. But yeah, that hell in a cell, I completely agree. I think you can take the most casual 
uh, wrestling fan. And like you said, even somebody that really don't follow wrestling, but maybe just sports itself, uh, has heard of that Hell in the Cell match. And I, I, I agree, too, with the statement that outside of, you know, probably before that match, everyone knew the Hogan-Andre match. But now I would ha- I'd venture to say, too, that this one's right up there with it as the most recognizable uh, match because, as you said, it was incredible, the, the insane bumps that Foley took, uh, you know, coming off the, the cage, hitting the uh, announce table. Uh, hurting his shoulder and then going back, uh, getting choke slammed through the roof of the yeah that gave away, uh, and, and hitting the ring and the tooth in the in the nose and then later on the the thumbtacks on top of everything else, uh, just insane match between those two and uh, uh, you know just that match alone, uh, you know. Knowing their backstory is, is enough, really, uh, to garner putting this on, on any kind of top huge list because it, it, it was that good. And as we've talked about before, The Undertaker had such a long career, and and he was just blessed as well. He could go, The Undertaker could. And Mick Foley, although he may not look like it, uh, is, it could go, could put on a great show in the ring was very strong on the mic, and I think this feud with The Undertaker skyrocketed him, and, and after that, his career was gold. Like you said, he ventured into the, the faces of Foley with Cactus Jack and uh, do Love, and then later on, you know, he would uh, become a fan favorite. He'd put the T-shirt, the old button-up shirt over his uh, for and, and would lo and behold, he would get a run with the the, the WWF championship. So uh, he he was just tremendous in his own right. And when these two collided, uh, it, it made for something special, and, and it, it was a fantastic feud. Absolutely, Lance. So before we take a break, I think that you haven't done your number three yet, have you, brother? Go. Let's go ahead and do that before we get into our top two. Well, in, in at number three on my list is Sting, uh, NWO feud. And I guess if you wanted to narrow it down even further, it'd kind of be Sting Hogan. But I kind of tied in with the NWO because they were red hot uh, when this feud, uh, uh, when the buildup first began. And it all began, here. lo and behold, you have Sting uh, uh, kind of like WCW's Hook Hogan in a way. He was their ultimate baby face, uh, never had a heel run. And all, lo and behold, here in 96, you have people questioning his alliances, who's he with and things. And then uh, I think the next night he comes out and, and cuts the little promo about, uh, I can't remember it word for word, but he closes it with that he's a free agent. He leaves, you don't see him for about a month. Then he shows up in the rafters in his crow character. And from that point all the way uh, for an entire calendar year until their Starcade 97 pay-per-view, which is in December, which is kind of like the WCW's WrestleMania, you had this incredible buildup uh, leading up to Sting challenging Hogan for the, for the world title. 
and to finally put an end to the NWO that had just ran rampant uh, through the WCW roster. And uh, you have Eric Bischoff, who's the powerful guy in WCW with the NWO and all this. And, you know, some of the great things for me uh, leading up to it, you know, Hogan there toward the end leading to Starcade would come into the ring, J.J. Dillon. You know, anybody with a half a brain knew what Sting wanted, would ask Sting, what do you want? And the fans would crowd uh, Chan Hogan, and he would just point the bat at the fans. And, you know, J.J. would come out every week and say, well, you've got a match with uh, Six, or you've got a match with Scott Hall, or this and that. But And Sting would just tear up the contract because he wanted Hogan. And... and, and to be honest, this would have probably been number one on my list because the build-up to it was so great. But then the actual match and the things that once it got to the point was just such a letdown. Uh, it kind of hurts it a little bit for me. is because that match between Sting and Hogan was horrible. <laughs> then you have Bret Hart. Uh, running in to restart it, you know, and and that just took it all away because Sting should have won outright the title, but this made it look like it was a tarnished victory, and I think they ended up even stripping him of the title, and he ends up winning it later on. But by then, who cared? And you know, uh, the they I don't know what happened, if there was anything backstage or what, but this was the best build up an angle to me ever and then it turns around and has probably the biggest letdown ever and it kind of hurts it and that's why it didn't end up at number one i agree with everything you just said and that's the the actual resolution and match is the only reason why it didn't crack my top 10 and i put a hundred percent of that blame on hogan because by all accounts he refused to cleanly lose to sting that night with a year and then the build up was a year yeah. it really sting really hadn't followed a match and like you said he come in some of the coolest things ever when he would rappel down with that ball bat and just whoop you know nine or ten yeah. at one time the the black and white crow like makeup the big black trench coat that he wore they was nothing cooler and and sting and 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 hogan forever had been the faces of two competing companies and ever since hogan had come over for the most part they were both still baby faces so they never squared off so it was something even before they started sowing the seeds of this match that fans of wrestling had wanted to see for a good 15 or 20 years. And for it to be the disaster it it was, was just an abomination. Like you said, Bret Hart come in because supposedly uh, they had done a quick count on them or something, which they actually hadn't. Uh, they they messed up that spot. I think the ref – and they just bungled the whole thing, and it was pitiful. Sting should have just beat him cleanly. Right. And it would have uh, definitely been one of the greatest feuds of all time. And because of Hogan's ego, it's not. Let's just be frank about it, Lance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like you said, if he would have won cleanly and we and the fans would have got the payoff we so rightfully deserved, uh, it, it definitely would have been the number one feud on my list because it was everything was done perfect up until that point. And how you could take something so good and, like you say, botch it so badly is beyond me and give Hogan the blame for that and and, and the people backstage, too, uh, that allowed it to happen. 
it's it's still beyond me how they done it so poorly, but still yet as bad as it ended, it still holds a special place for me because I, I really did like you pointed out some of the awesome things Sting did to the build up, and then I liked the little segments with JJ dealing with the different contracts. And just everything was so perfect up until that point. It's still on my list, but uh, it, it's uh, it would also be on my most disappointing wrestling angles too. So it, it it goes from one end of the spectrum to the other. Yep. So we'll take another quick break and then come back. I think we've each got just two left, Lance. Two We're coming to the near to the end of the road, brother. All right, Lance, for my number two, I've got Shawn Michaels versus Bret Hart. And if we was ranking true rivalries outside the ring on how much animosity and hatred individuals had towards one another in real life, this would no doubt be number one with a bullet. These two fellas hated each other for various reasons. Uh, Bret Hart, by all accounts, was, you know, a pro's pro. He took the – he was brought up in a wrestling family. He took the industry and business of wrestling as serious as any individual to ever be part of it, in and inside and outside of the ring. Shawn Michaels, for the biggest part of his career, was one of the best in ring performers, but he he was a wild man and very immature outside of the ring. He loved to party, get out all night the night before and, and get drunk, and that really rubbed Brett the wrong way. And they eventually, they always had a, a little bit of a rivalry in the locker room because of that, and they finally moved that over to the end of the ring in the 90s. Uh, I remember one time uh, they was a, uh, a, a personality part-time manager and sometimes just doing interviews and stuff. Her name was Sonny. She was the most downloaded woman on the Internet, I think, in 1996. <laughs> and if you don't know who that is, you can go ahead and look her up now. But, uh, you know, at the time, Lance, me and you was in our teen, mid to late teens when this was going on. I'm sure you felt the same way about her that I did. Yes. But anyway. I, I contributed to the downvote. Yeah, and by all accounts, Bret Hart was a family man in real life, never steered away and uh, to cheat on his wife and stuff. But but I remember Sean cut a promo on him one night and, and insinuated that, that Bret Hart had been having sex with Sonny. <laughs> When in all actuality, by all accounts, Sean and Sonny was the ones that was had a thing going on behind the scene. And that really got Brett Raw. But their two most famous matches, no doubt, is that we mentioned a 45-minute Iron Man match between uh, Sting and Flair earlier, but they won up to them and they had a 60-minute Iron Man match at WrestleMania. And the, uh, and Bret Hart was the, the champion and Sean was the challenger. And neither one of them was really a heel during this time. At all, it was two. Ba- it was the rare two baby faces uh, taking each other on, and Sean had been chasing that title for a long time. And the the rules was basically whoever got the most pinfalls and submissions over an hour was your world champion at the end of the night. And they fought one of, if not one, the greatest technical matches for an hour in the history of wrestling. And I'll be daggum if the sixty minutes didn't expire, neither one of them had had, had got another one to say I quit or pinned them. So they added an old t- and and Brett was walking out even though it was a draw, thinking he was the you know still the champion, and uh, I think Vince McMahon pre Mister McMahon come out and made an executive decisions to go ahead and do a sudden death overtime, and the first one to get the opponent to quit or to uh, get them pinned was going was going to win the match, and they fought a good another ten or fifteen minutes. So really they fought for about an hour and fifteen twenty minutes, man, and. 
I don't know of any two wrestlers good enough to go that long in a match and keep your attention other than these two. What What are your thoughts on that before I move on to the other match? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to say I absolutely agree. And I think part of the, the reason their chemistry was so good in the ring was, as odd as this may sound, is because it was so bad outside of the <laughs> ring. Yeah. Uh, you know, they basically, when they got in the ring with the, one another, they wanted to show, uh, hey, I'm better than you. Which led that, which gave us uh, one of the the greatest matches ever, and, and I completely agree. I, I'm like you. I don't know if any two could have pulled that off or not. That made you so invested in it. You know, I remember the build up for Shawn Michaels, the boyhood dream. I think he had his old manager trainer Jose Lothario with him a lot during the build up of this, and, and it was just an incredible build up. Uh, leading to Shawn Michaels' moment to have an opportunity to win the world championship. And then you've got Bret Hart, like you said, who was the ultimate professional who, uh, you know, had grown up with the Hart family, trained in the dungeon, as they called it. Uh, Wrestling was in his blood. He was as straight-laced as they come. Shawn Michaels a little bit more on the wild side, especially in real life. And then... You know, you put them together in the ring, and it just was pure gold. And this was a, just one of the best matches ever and uh, one of my all-time favorites. Absolutely. And then, obviously, their second match, which is one of the most famous matches in wrestling history, and not necessarily for what happened during the match, but what happened at the end of it is the famous Montreal screw job. Now, many people point – to Stone Cold giving the promo on Jake the Snake at King of the Ring and saying Austin 316 says, I just whipped your asses, the start of the Attitude Era. But in all, honestly, and and, and really, it kicked off this night. Uh, Bret Hart was champion at this time, and uh, he had already stated that he was going to WCW. His contract was up. And he uh, this match was taking place in his home country of Canada, and he didn't want to drop the belt. That night, but he said he would gladly drop it, you know, the next night on Raw, whatever events wanted him to do. So they had come into an agreement that he was gonna he was gonna win this match. Now, earlier that year, the women's champion, Medusa, well, her contract was up, and even though it wasn't that big of a thing, showed up with the belt on Nitro on WCW and threw it in the garbage. Mm-hmm. So understandably, Vince had some reservations about Brett still being champion at the end of this night when all intents and purposes this was it for him in WWF. Because it would have been a disaster had he showed up on Nitro the next night with with the belt and done the same thing, which I don't think that he would have, but that possibility was there. So as the story goes, now Vince and the referee was in cahoots, and uh, there was going to be a spot in the match in which Michaels put Bret Hart in his own finishing move, which was the sharpshooter, and the referee was going to go ahead and ring the bell and give the belt to Sean. And that's what happened. Now – Two or three different stories exist on whether or not Michaels knew about this ahead of time, and he did. It come to find out he denied it forever, even swore on his own grave back in the locker room that, and on his mom's grave and on Jesus Christ that he didn't, but Capeller was attempting faith there because he did. But I guess he was a good liar. And Bret Hart went in real life. I mean, we talked about in the last episode kayfabe and things of that nature. 
he legitimately lost his mind. Here he was in his own country. He spit on, he hawked a big old nasty goober on Vince, and the cameraman deserved an award for that night because he zoomed right in on Vince's face, and that snot was just dripping off of yeah. it. And if that wasn't enough, there was a documentary at the time following Brett around, and they caught him back the aftermath. Brett legitimately knocked Vince cold with a punch. And he even wrote on, on air as they were going off and, you know, spelled out WCW and stuff with his finger. And that was one of the more bizarre things anybody had ever seen. And it, and forever people never knew whether or not what, 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 how much of it was real and how much wouldn't. And to this day, a lot of people act like Bret Hart was in on it the whole time. And I don't know if we'll ever know. For, for, <laughs> we don't ever know truly the, the truth because – for 15 years, Sean swore up and down. He had nothing to do with it. He finally admitted it a few years back. And Brett went to WCW and was wasted there, totally wasted. I mean, I don't – they just done him – they did him very, very dirty on how they used him. But, I mean, DX pretty much took over. Stone Cold took over for the next few years. Uh, Raw took off, and, and it really, I think, was beginning of the end for WCW as a whole. And at the time, I mean, Bret Hart was one of the – Nitro was killing Raw in the ratings, and here they were stealing away their champion. You'd have never bet that Raw would have ended up on top out of the two at the time. But I guess in the, in the scheme of things, it was a blessing in disguise for the WWF that Hart left. That allowed them to go in a new direction. It was one that hit home with the majority of the fans. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it was probably in the long run. Uh, it, it, well, there's no doubt about it. It worked out great for the WWF. Uh, kind of sad to see uh, Hart get that kind of an ending because I'm like you. There's nothing I've ever seen or read that makes me think that Brett, uh, as professional as he was uh, up to that point in his career, that makes me believe that he wouldn't have dropped that title any other time that he would have been asked to do so. There's no way I believe he would have showed up on WCW with that title. But uh, like you said, uh, probably no one thought that Medusa would have done it either, although I don't really know anything about her. But I don't think anybody really thought she would have showed up with that title and done that. So I understand Vince having some reservations, but at the same time, I think uh, uh, it, it was handled very bad. But... Uh, regardless of anything, like you said, I don't think we'll ever know the true and full story of it. But uh, despite all that, it, it made for one of the most uh, historic moments ever in the history of wrestling. Uh, you, I think that was probably, like you said, kind of the first time, as they say, the curtain was pulled back and you got really an inside taste of that backstage and all the stuff that goes into wrestling. And then I completely agree. I think this was the night that the Attitude Era was born because uh, I think it might have been the very next Raw. Uh, we had Vince come out and say, you know, Brett screwed Brett. Yep. He didn't do it. And there Mr. McMahon was born. That leads to the Austin feud. And then the rest is history, as they say. But uh, this was a fantastic – and had it been a little longer, I think I would have had it on my list because I debated back and forth forever on this one because uh, I, I knew that they, like you pointed out, they actually truly hated each other uh, outside the ring. 
and that just made for great television when we got them inside the ring and a, a fantastic feud. Uh, and anybody that likes wrestling, that I'm sure they've already seen it, but if they haven't, they need to go back and watch that Iron Man match. Absolutely. All right, Lance, old buddy. Looking over here on your list, your number two is my number one, so what better time to go ahead and talk about it, brother? Go ahead and announce it. In at number two is uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin and Vince McMahon. And I hope when I get to my number one, people can kind of see my thought process why this wasn't my number one because this was truly a feud that absolutely deserves uh, to be number one on a list, uh, deserves all the accolades because to me, this was the feud that propelled the popularity of pro wrestling into the atmosphere because here you had Stone Cold uh, just a, uh, you know, the kind of a blue-collar anti-hero going up against the evil corporate boss, trying to tell him what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And he just wasn't going to have none of it. And uh, that first time he gave Vince the stunner, uh, you know, the and the crowd, uh, that, that's one of the things that <clears throat> kind of gets forgotten. Uh, by today's standards, is when you go back and watch these Raws and even, uh, I can't say as much Nitro. Some of their crowds were red hot, but I don't think during the Attitude Era I ever watched a Raw or SmackDown to where the crowd wasn't just about on fire for these people. And signs galore in the stadiums and the arenas, and, and this feud just had it all. You had a just some of the most iconic moments uh, that I know we've talked about briefly before, uh, the beer bath, uh, the <clears throat> the concrete in the car. Uh, you had him in the ring pulling out the toy gun, making Vince pee all over himself. Uh, the great the great bedpan skit, uh, and just on and on and on. But just some of the interaction these these guys had with each other. Uh, you know, Vince trying to uh, keep uh, Stone Cold down, and, and I'll never forget at that pay-per-view, he just says, screw you, Austin, you're fired. And, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, I, I, there's so much you could say, but I think those are the iconic moments that, that people remember forever, but then you've got the, uh, you know, as you talked to earlier, the, the build-up for him and Michaels, they bring in Mike Tyson. Well, Stone Cold don't care about Mike Tyson. He comes out, ruins Vince's plans. You know, he says you ruined this and hollering and kicking at him and, and Austin trying to get to him. And it's just, uh, uh, you know, and then later on, you have his own wife, Linda, reinstating Stone Cold. So, they brought in a lot of other things to keep it fresh, but you just knew these two hated each other. And I think there was a, a time on Raw where uh, Stone Cold said he could win with one hand tied behind his back. So Vince made him tie one of his hands <laughs> behind his back, and they go at it. And, and it was just, uh, uh, you know, the promos, like we said, but Vince was a good talker, and back then he had that strut. Uh uh, and and to go back to our original show, the theme song, 
you know, no chance, no chance in hell. You know, he was going to make sure Vince, or I'm sorry, Stone Cold had no chance of being his champion. You know, and he tells Stone Cold, we can do it the hard way or the easy way. And you just knew Stone Cold was going to do it the hard way. (laughs) And it was just fantastic television and entertainment. And and to me, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, some of the greatest, I guess, uh, I'll say some of the fondest memories I have is, is watching wrestling back then during this time. And this is one of the reasons why I loved it so much is purely and simply for Stone Cold and Vince going at it. Absolutely. This is, to me, the best and my and my personal favorite feud in wrestling history. And it's that way for several reasons, some of which you already touched on there, Lance. But, I mean, it's the one feud that I think that anybody, be it a wrestling fan or somebody that's never watched one second of a match in their life would identify with. And that's a fella that's just taking on the horrible boss. And I remember this was the feud that really got the attention of non-wrestling fans back in, when we was in high school, Lance. Me, it was not a fashionable and popular thing to be a wrestling fan at one point in time, believe it or not. No, but no, this no. feud brought in so many new fans that you was having people that had never even watched a second of wrestling ordering pay-per-views, buying Stone Cold T-shirts and whatnot. And you mentioned some of the moments, man. And there's so many. I wonder how many times that Stone Cold got arrested on account of him doing things to and against McMahon. It's a good thing he was a wrestler because he'd never been able to find gainful employment with that kind of arrest record. <laughs> Had he ever tried to do anything else. But you mentioned the bedpan scene, but I'll elaborate on that. Stone Cold had put McMahon in the hospital. I think he had broke, allegedly broke his leg with the steel stairs on yeah. the previous Monday Night Raw. And they build up to this moment brilliantly. We mentioned Mick Foley a while ago. But poor old Vince McMahon, here he is laying there in the hospital, broke leg all popped up in his hospital gown. And, and Mick Foley come in earlier in the episode and tried to cheer him up and give him balloons and done a sock old puppet. And to tell you how popular wrestling was in the late 90s, that sock puppet was called Mr. Socko when it got over as much as about any real wrestler in the history of the industry. <laughs> It did. It was more popular than a lot of them. And, uh, but finally, towards the end of the night, they was getting ready to discharge McMahon from the hospital, finally. He'd been in a bad mood all night, wanting to get to go home. And the nurse come in and checked his vitals and told him he was well enough to finally get on, get on out of there. <laughs> and she said, just need to sign off on it, doctor. And the doctor turned around in that stone cold voice, I'll take it from here, nurse. And, I, and, and removed his little surgical mask, and I'll be damned if it wasn't stone cold Steve Austin. And to me, this may be the best segment in wrestling history outside of the ring, outside of an actual match, because that that the the job that both of them did in selling this segment is beautiful. Yeah. McMahon don't get enough credit for how good of an actor wow. and a seller he was during this whole era, man. Stone Cold beat on him every which way a human being could possibly beat on another one for about five minutes. He took an empty bedpan and just beat him over the head with it. He just wailed on him, and, and I understand people the same way he's pulling his punch and stuff, but he was wailing on him hard enough to, to – McMahon had to be feeling it in real life. Yeah. And then he bent him over and get, – <laughs> God Almighty, Lance, he give him an enema live on air, brother. He, <laughs> and I remember he, he said that line. It was a, it was something that you, I didn't even catch the first time, I don't think, but as I've over the years I've rewatched this on YouTube and Peacock, he says, this is going to hurt you, Vince, a lot more than it hurts me. And right before he gives him that in a month. 
And if that ain't enough, he gets the defibrillators out and starts to shocking him and electrocuting him. <laughs> and Vince just sold it wonderfully. And, and I'm telling you, I don't know if there's a single like 10-minute segment that I've watched more of repeatedly over the years than this one. It never fails to, to bring a smile on my face and make me laugh. And then you mentioned the cement truck. McMahon supposedly had this one-of-a-kind white Corvette made. It was priceless. And he, he left the top down on it. And you knew right away as he drove that thing in in, in the Monday Night Raw that Stone Cold was going to do something to it. And he brung a cement trunk in it and dumped about a ton of cement down in it and run it. <laughs> and I think later on he even took brung in a big old monster truck and rode over Vince's limo and destroyed it too. He drove beer trucks to the rings, Zambonis to the ring. It didn't matter. And uh, it, I remember one year at the Royal Rumble, Vince put a bounty on Stone Cold's head and said if whoever throwed him out, he'd give him, I think, $100,000 cash. And I, if I ain't mistaken, Vince ended up entering himself in that Rumble. Yeah. Did he win it? I think he, he did. He won the damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> and Vince was in his 50s at this time, but he should get credit for being able to pull off some good matches with Stone Cold. I remember they, fought, they had that match at St. Valentine's Day Massacre that was a uh, – Hell in a Cell match, if I remember correctly. And this feud went on for a good solid two years. The highlight every Monday night is what Stone Cold going to do to Vince McMahon tonight. What are you going to do to him? And they somehow continually topped themselves week after week after week after week. And it brought in so many new fans to the industry. It seemed in my fandom. I don't know if I've ever loved a run that I loved of the Attitude Era in the WWF at this time. And that is thanks into the biggest part of Stone Cold and Vince McMahon. And I understand Stone Cold's on the Mount Rushmore wrestlers, but Vince should absolutely get a lot of credit for that as well. He pulled off the role of the horrible, mean corporate boss beautifully. And like we mentioned at the very start of this episode, you only as good as what your villain is. And for my money, as far as being straight up hated, I don't know if anybody's been hated by the fans as much as Vince McMahon did during that run. No, I don't either, and and I completely one hundred and ten percent agree with uh, with about Vince McMahon. Uh, say what you want to about the man, if you just want to go solely on the attitude, or he does, he deserves. Uh, you know, Stone Cold and those guys probably deserve most of the credit, but I, I would dare to say that he deserves right up there to be mentioned right up there with those guys. Vince does. Uh, you know, although he was, like you said, in his 50s, he managed to stay in great shape and was able to perform. And like you said, he, he you know, he was always had a, had the voice and was able to talk as he was an announcer for years oh, yeah. and years. And, and he just kind of took that to the next level, uh, cutting his promos. And you're absolutely right. I mean, genuine hatred for a character he's probably number one on that list and he just did a tremendous job uh of, of like you said you wanted to tune in just to see what stone cold was going to do to him next and i i'm just like you this here is what uh like you said uh made me uh, uh you know see men in me as well as just a pure wrestling fan and this was my all-time favorite uh run of pro wrestling my favorite era uh, and it probably always will be. I compare everything to it. Uh, it it's going to be my favorite. And, and I was the same way uh, uh, in my circle. You know, I was a wrestling fan from a little small kid. 
Uh, most of my other friends thought wrestling was ridiculous, but when the Attitude Era rolled around, it became extremely mainstream and popular. And a lot of those same guys that were saying, you know, uh, you know, why are you wasting your time watching that was glued to the TV sets every Monday night now. And uh, this feud here was uh, probably the main reason that was happening. And like you said, everything they ended up going together just seemed like it was gold. And they just had that chemistry that's hard to find between two uh, uh, wrestlers or, or performers. Uh, but they found it, and uh, it just turned into magic every night uh, when they got together, either talking or skits or promos. And uh, the bed pan skit, I, I'm right there with you. It's it's my favorite. And uh, uh, just some awesome, awesome moments those two gave us. Absolutely. So, Lance, I guess there ain't but one thing left to do, brother, and that's for us to talk about your number one. What is it? Well, I I went a little bit different, I guess you could say. This is the one that I kind of cheated on. Uh, my process led me to number one being Eric Bischoff and Vince McMahon as to my number one feud. And and the reason I, I, I did them as number one is because I feel like they need to get the credit they deserve. I feel like if it wasn't for those two, uh, you know, Bischoff, getting control of WCW, getting Nitro on the air, leading to the Monday Night Wars, which led to Bischoff and McMahon trying to one-up each other. I just, you know, in my mind, I don't know if we would have had the same kind of programming and wrestling that we had from about 95 to 02 that we had if these two hadn't have been in control of, of these two uh, companies at the time because – you know, we talked about a lot of the things uh, already, uh, you know, the Montreal screw job, but then, you know, uh, you had the Outsiders, Hall and Nash show up at WCW, you know, and, and there for a while, uh, at that time still, the internet was kind of new. Uh, stuff could still stay hidden. You didn't know if Hall and Nash was really invading WCW or not. Uh, you thought, well, maybe what, what's uh, Razor Ramon and Diesel doing over there on WCW? Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Medusa throwing the title away. Luger showing up that first night on Nitro after just being on WWE programming. You got DX trying to invade WCW showing up at the arena. Uh, just so many moments. Uh, you know, Foley winning his title on Raw and Shivani, Shivani making the comments, something about that to put butts in the seats. And then, you know, I know that uh, Nitro sometimes would come on a little bit earlier and they would give the results of Raw live right on the air. And then they'd go into their program. And then you had Thunder, WCW Thunder created to compete with SmackDown and and, you know, I think just them two wanting to be the best, trying to one-up each other, led to the Monday Night Wars, which led to the Attitude Era, and everything fell into place after that. But uh, because of these two guys uh, and their feud with each other, I think led to just some of the best wrestling, the best wrestling time period that we'll ever see probably. And uh, that's sort of the reason I went with them number one. Lance, that's actually a great point, man. Most of everything we've talked about tonight, well, the majority of them has been there in this era 
either on the WCW or WWF side. And obviously competition breed, a lot of times will push people and organizations to a level that they hadn't been before. And I wholeheartedly agree with your statement that nit the creation of Nitro, uh, that, to be frank with you, that at that time, WWF had gotten really, really silly. Yeah. Uh, we might as well announce it now. Lance and I talked about off there. We're going to do a trilogy of wrestling shows, folks. Good things come in threes. And we've mentioned on both episodes, this one and the entrance song, some of the silly gimmicks over the years. Well, come August, right around SummerSlam time, me and him are going to be back with part three, and it's the ten, according to us, silliest or craziest, stupidest gimmicks in wrestling history. So be looking for that one. But that's all WWF was at the time. I mean, they had yeah. – we'll touch on this later. They had clowns, dentists, race car drivers, trash men, <laughs> you name it. Yeah. And the WCW come on, they started winning the head-to-head -head ratings. And it really pushed WWF to take a second look at their product and up their game, and the rest is history. So I'm glad you brought that out. And I remember you touched on it right then, the night Foley won the title. Some some weeks, for scheduling purposes, Raw was taped over the weekend, and it wasn't live. Well, now Nitro was live every week. And they had beaten the WWF head-to-head, -head, I think, at that point, for about two years straight, basically about 100-some weeks. And Tony Schiavone was the play-by-play -play man on Nitro, and he said, folks, don't turn away to the competition. Mick Foley, I hear, is going to win the title. Who wants to watch that? Well, <laughs> it backfired on him, brother. Yeah, it was and, and that was the first night in, a, in two years' time that the WWE won the head-to-head -head ratings, and they slowly started winning them more and more until they started dominating them, until WCW went totally out of business and was purchased in real life by Vince McMahon. And the two most shocking things I think people could have said that you would see in your lifetime at the beginning of the Monday Night Wars would be Bischoff on Raw and Vince McMahon on Nitro. Well, so I'll be daggummed if you didn't turn on Nitro one night and there was Vince McMahon on the Jumbotron saying he'd bought the company. And it wasn't about a year or so after that, Bischoff come over to the WWF. And I would have laid money that you'd have never saw either of those things. But it, but in wrestling, I guess anything's possible, as we've so well established. <laughs> so I wholeheartedly agree with you that that's no doubt the most important feud in wrestling history because it bred the best era of wrestling ever up until this point. And like you said, I don't know if it'll ever be topped. From the mid to late 90s to the early 2000s, it was as good as it gets. You had the best of the best performing at their highest levels inside and outside the ring. So I'm glad you said that, Lance. And what a way to end this episode, brother. Yeah, it, it is. I, I just thought they uh, deserved their recognition there. Like you said, uh, that's the best way to say it. It's the most important feud. It might not be the, the best, uh, you know, because there wasn't any actual uh, action between those two at that time. But like you said, later on, Bischoff would, would join Raw and, and, you know, and I tell you, during the heyday, you wouldn't have thought that you would have tried to see the NWO over on on the WWE either. And then later in 02, we got that when those guys, uh, after the purchase and everything. But, yeah, it, it did. It, like you said, it bred uh, all the other stuff that uh, went into the uh, Attitude Era and everything that followed and, and just made for the best time to be a wrestling fan. And, uh just uh, you know, I think it deserved its uh, 
recognition, and I'm glad that uh, we got we're going to be back talking about the gimmicks. That should be a great show as well. Absolutely. Thanks again, Lance. I told you off there earlier that our first episode on wrestling is one of the most well-received ones I've did in that show's history, and primarily this show's a music podcast, and that brought in so many new listeners. Like we mentioned earlier, the Stone Cold McMahon feud brought in so many more fans of wrestling. I guess a wrestling episode brought in a lot of new fans of this show, and, I, and, and that's thanks in large part to you, Lance. You know your stuff when it comes to wrestling. I think me and you have a great chemistry together when we talk about this stuff. I think our passion and love for the for the sport of wrestling shows in our comments, and I'm looking forward to people's reactions on this one, and I'm very much looking forward to part three when we get into the real silliness of how wrestling can be. That's going to be a great one, brother. Lance, take care of my friend, and we'll talk to you again here in August. Uh, looking forward to it, and like you said, uh, our, our passion does pull through on these shows, and uh, I'm so thankful that uh, you invited me on. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to the part three. The gimmicks will give them another great episode. Y'all take care, and we'll see you next week. For now, this has been That One Show with Brian Combs. That One Show is brought to you by The Goblin Trading Company and is written, recorded, and produced by me, Brian Combs, most of the time, right on my kitchen table. If you enjoy this show, I ask that you please share it with others that you think may like it as well. And in the meantime, check out that one show on social media, either on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or all of the above. Thanks for listening, and until next week, spin that black circle.